we're back, and after much ado, much anticipation, it's finally here. Mike, Mike, and Oscar here, ready to take on part two of our Once Upon a Time in Hollywood review, the spoiler section delving into the plot of everything that happened in Hollywood on this, the opening days of August 2019, or the six-year anniversary of the Lindsay Lohan comeback picture, The Canyons. Mike, this is the third time <laughs> you, you mentioned <laughs> a Lindsay Lohan movie in one of these anniversary of, kind of, whatever this is. One of these comebacks is going to stick. <laughs> I know who killed me. <laughs> yeah. The Parent Trap. Now, I thought you were referring to the original Parent Trap. Ah, uh, well, that makes sense. Then. The one I right. kind of grew That's up That's why on. you were so giddy and happy, yeah. not the 1994 Lindsay Lohan picture. Which is fine. It's not terrible. <laughs> I watched that, too. She, okay. was, she was adorable and, and a star, even from then. Sure. But the Canyons, though? Yeah. The Canyons, though. Did you see it? No. Who's, who's seen it? Not Lindsay Lohan, I don't think. <laughs> um, taking cheap shots, I apologize. That's co-host also Mike. I'm your co-host Mike One. And like I said, this is the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood review, part two. What we had was part one already. If you missed that, uh, we call it the non-spoiler section, but really we held everything up in this movie up to an Oscars lens, right Mike? Yeah, it was fun to speculate uh, and compare Once Upon a Time in Hollywood's chances for this year's Oscars to what was nominated last year to what we talked about in the mid-year Oscars report, which was a three-part series we did that took on every category, movies we've seen already and movies that we've yet to see and that are only buzzed about at this point. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, we compared Once Upon a Time in Hollywood to what has been released thus far, kind of doing apples to apples there. It's the front runner in many categories. We had some debates on how many noms it'll get. So that, that's a whole unique set of goods from part one that if you missed, you know, make sure and go back and look at that. But we also reviewed the production values, performance and the uh, the script in a general way that we're not going to do here. So like I said, there's a lot of unique goods from part one, and we also went behind the scenes a lot. Yeah, is, a lot of prep fun. work, a lot of research that went into specifically just non-spoiler stuff that we don't know how to market otherwise, but we don't necessarily mean it's just a non-spoiler It's review. part one. It's part one of the review because it's all kinds of stuff that we researched, went out, wrote about, and will not be covering again in this section because yes. this is plot specific. Uh, we wanted to do more Oscars breakdown and Oscars analysis in part one as well as the box office, the behind the scenes stories like Mike just told you. So that's where we are today and today you're going to get our takes on the plot of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and all the spoilers that lie within as well as our highs, our lows, uh, like we've been doing throughout our Tarantino rewatch episodes in the spoiler sections, we will have a trip to the movies, or at least to the theater, for an up-and-coming theater group <laughs> doing a Tarantino scene interpretation. We will be talking about what is classic Tarantino, sneaky classic Tarantino, and un-Tarantino in this movie. That's how we discuss some of our best scenes. We'll discuss our worst scenes in there as well. Mike's got some writing advice from QT himself, and we're going to talk about some Tarantino verse connections and some Easter eggs to finish this all off with. That's how we differentiate the Tarantino rewatch episodes from what we usually do here, but because this is also a part Oscar Sprint profile. This is what's going to carry you through and be our main coverage of this film for the Oscars of 2019-2020 coming up. So it's time to go to the theater. And now for your spoiler warning pleasure, the Mike Mike and Oscar Theater Company presents a Quentin Tarantino scene reenactment interpretation. Look, 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 Randy, I'm asking you to help me out. If the answer's no, then the answer's no. Not, not no with excuses. Hey, man, this isn't a fucking Andy McLaughlin picture. I mean, I can't afford to hire a bunch of guys to smoke cigarettes and sit around talking to each other all day on the chance that I might use them. 
I got a four-man team here, Rick. If I need more than that, I got to get it approved. And, you know, I, I got to look after my dudes. Hey, and if your dudes were a better match for me, then I, I'd say you get you got me. But, but, but that's not the case, and you know it. He, he's a great fucking match for me. Yeah, man, man, I don't know. Hey, you, you can do anything you want to him. Throw him off a building, all right? Light him on fire. Hit him with a fucking Lincoln. Get creative. Do whatever you want. He's just happy for the opportunity. Uh, Rick. Yeah? I don't dig him. And I don't dig the vibe he brings on set. All right. No more waiting. No more ado. I don't know why I keep harping on that word, but I do. But let's talk about the plot. This is the spoiler section for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, as brought to you by Mike, Mike, and Oscar as part of our Tarantino Rewatch and Oscar Sprint Profile series. If you've not seen this movie, this is a good place for you to pause, although why would you hit a hit play in the first place? But anyway, you can hit pause, go watch the movie, you'll come back, we'll be waiting for you when you do. If you've seen the movie already, if you're interested to hear our thoughts on the spoilers, or if we've just hyped up the spoiler section so much for you in part one, which was our previous episode during the non-spoiler portion of this review, uh, this is where you want to be. It's all spoilers all the time from here on out mike mike and oscar doing the oscar sprint profile slash tarantino rewatch episode of once upon a time in hollywood quentin tarantino's ninth written and directed film michael we start the spoiler sections historically with these tarantino movies by doing what we call trademark tarantino now what that is is a three-headed monster of talking about the best of tarantino we talk about what's called classic tarantino what he's probably most known for or in this case it's a little unique since we're looking forward not backwards mm -hmm. so we're going to talk about what we think this movie will be known for over time or what we think the audience would come to expect from this movie uh have they not seen it yet or maybe what they might be surprised by then we're going to talk about sneaky classic or underrated classic tarantino maybe what we think this movie should be known for what we think some of the lasting legacy some of the overrated or overlooked parts of this movie are then we will wrap up in what we call un-tarantino or first time tarantino stuff which is really going to be a big highlight for me personally i have a lot in this one it's stuff that yeah. tarantino is not known for historically throughout the first eight of his movies after that we'll be moving on talking about our worst scenes things we did not like problems we have with the movie and the script overall we'll move on from there like i said in the intro of this episode we'll talk about screenwriting tips from tarantino himself we'll wrap up some easter egg stuff i think it's worth noting to start off on this foot mm -hmm. mike is again the more well-rounded one of us two uh I'll, I'll i'll be the one to say we're speaking in facts here nobody's seen this movie more than us yet <laughs> you saw it four times we, i saw it four yeah, times we have seen this movie four times a piece as we hit record <laughs> right now in the afternoon of july 31st so I, I say that tongue-in-cheek, obviously, I know these are our opinions mixed in as well, but we like to think we do have somewhat of an understanding, at least, having done all the studying and the research throughout every Tarantino movie to provide some sort of perspective that maybe you're not going to hear everywhere else. So that's our hope and what we're going to try to accomplish for you and, frankly, for our benefit today. And yet my nightmare is that I like this scene, and then you say, oh, I like this scene. We've had we've, a three-day-long argument. I'm but I'm worried because, like, we've done so much research. Are we overwhelmed with the research? Because we watch the manson docs we're gonna you know pepper that stuff in we've watched every video on youtube we've listened to a million podcasts mike we've done too much we're obsessed i think all we have to avoid is singing paul revere and the raiders right. if we could just eschew <laughs> that for this recording we're gonna sing leo singing other bands <laughs> that's gonna happen i already i already got it written down but i i wanted to ask you something first though mike hmm. when was the last time you went to the movies four times to see a film. Well, three times was Endgame. I did see that in theaters okay. three times. So, when was the last four time? times? It's been a while. Yeah, I, to me, it's only happened a couple times. Yeah, same here. Phantom Thread, 
uh, Lord of the Rings, Two Towers, I think I saw four times. Really? And then, and then The Dark Knight. You know, I, I think it's a couple of factors at play. Yes, we did enjoy this movie. So if right. you, we're, we're going to be well-rounded. We're going to tell you about some shortcomings. We think we do try to be as objective as possible. But uh, we did enjoy this movie as critics and as fans of Tarantino's overall. I think also there's a sense of pride that goes into it just because we have been so inundated with his work that now we're kind of looking for the minutia in some of the stuff he's doing, and obviously mm -hmm. we're not going to catch all of it. That's clear as day. We're not going to find out some Easter eggs until this movie's been out for 20 years already and people have discovered it. True, and yet we're going to mention a shit right. ton of things. <laughs> so yeah. I, I think that is more driving us to, to go to the theaters that many times than it is just personal preference. I like to think so anyway, but we'll see. But what do we have to start off here, Mike? An immediate carryover that is also a classic Tarantino good delivered because he created another product line. He created a line of dog foods and it might be my favorite thing in the entire movie. This is Wolf Tooth Dog Food yeah. brand. <laughs> my raccoon and rat flavored. Bird, raccoon, rat flavor. Was I was looking for the other flavor. Yeah. I couldn't see it. I, I think there's even another flavor I that I couldn't too. see. I wondered if it was snake. Somewhere in my oh. brain, I thought it might have been snake. But I was looking on the last watch, and I couldn't see anything. My eyes aren't that hawk-like. Yeah. And, but maybe if there's a hawk maybe it's flavor, hawk. <laughs> hawk flavor, I don't know. But I love the dog food so much. And then you read the caption on the dog food, and it says, good food for mean dogs. And this is where we're starting. We're starting at the end. We're going to start about the, the most violent that this movie gets. Yeah. And we've it has to do with the meanness of the dog but what's funny to me i alluded to this in part one is there was a woman in my third viewing of this in the theater somebody asked her whoever she came with said what does that caption say and she said good food for dogs and i was like oh oh no no dear you've missed the most important word right before all the mayhem erupted so again you knew I mean, we all knew, right? Whether you've seen every Tarantino movie or none, mm -hmm. that dog food was going to play some sort of role or at least be an indicator of things to come. He has done this many times before where he's set up a long ritual, right? And then that ritual is mirrored at the end of the film after you set it up at the mm -hmm. beginning of the film, but it's interrupted. And here we go again. And how, first of all, just speaking about that plainly, making feeding your dog as cinematic as he makes it, mm -hmm. it should be illegal. I mean, that's just pure talent, it's and I, I don't mean to just blow Tarantino yeah, right off the top here. It's endearing. It's, but it's that's awesome. amazing. It is. Yeah, I, I couldn't get past that. And to make the plopping of the dog food its own artistic endeavor, I thought that was Wait, beautiful. Let's go back to Pulp Fiction. I mean, Jules giving the speech and then talking about the speech later on. Yeah. Good that, point. Again, Great point. mirrors it right there. You have two Mexican standoffs at the beginning and the end. We're going to talk about Mexican standoffs again as well. But let's start with that ending. The flamethrower, the dog, the screaming girl, the Italian wife, Francesca, punches the uh, Katie in the face. You have Booth slamming, I think it was Katie again, slamming her head three times into four different surfaces. It's overkill. Tarantino so will overkill. Literally. The worst bad guys yeah. of history. Yeah. And I, I wanted to start with that because I think it's really important thematically. It's really important talking about the realer and real and movie movie universes. It's just bottom line really important, Mike, because Tarantino made a movie about how you can remember all of his movies and how you can contextualize all of his movies. Interesting point. We have every single Manson documentary talking about this as the night the 60s die. The free love. The end of innocence. Yeah, the end of the age of innocence. The end of the age of innocence. And we have the realer and real universe saying, not here, that doesn't happen. And it's it's melancholic with the way he closes it, but 
with the way he rejoices in the hyper real violence which was as we watched in other movies i won't spoil them something that he totally indulged and which would become historically celebrated in that society to the point mike where bounty law is on children's lunch boxes yeah yeah, they become their own uh, idols. Could you imagine a reality <laughs> where the premise of the show is the hero being such an anti-hero, killing all these outlaws, draping them like in cold blood? We've seen King Schultz do it. We've seen but isn't that Warren the do it. Biggest commentary of Tarantino on his own filmmaking. Yeah. The guy that's always undercut and has always done the opposite of expectations and subverted the audience's expectations. Now, he doesn't do it in one scene necessarily, but just the idea that your idol is going to be the one blasting you in the face with a flamethrower at the end of the day. <laughs> I mean, that's Tarantino in a nutshell, essentially, and I think that's very indicative. And, and I have my entire opinion throughout this classic Tarantino ser- section, and especially in Untarantino, is going to be he knows he's going for the Oscar in this one. So everything so. is done with a bit of restraint as opposed to, pardon the phrasing, classic Tarantino movies. And, and yet, and yet, this is what he's known for now. Right. He's done it three or four times and most of his movies have ended in bloodbaths. So when the Academy looks at this, they're not going to say, oh my God. Like if this is the first time he ever done that, everybody would be like, oh my God, we can never nominate this. Oh, yeah. they, would, they would be freaked out. But because he's done it I mean, at least twice think, before. Think about what's happening in this alone. You have the most gruesome overkill, like you say. It's the most violent violence. And yet... If you ask anybody that's familiar with Tarantino movies about this movie, they'll say it was probably slower paced. There wasn't enough blood and violence. When somebody's getting flamethrown in the pool at the end of the scene, because yeah. he waits two and a half hours before he gives you that over the top violence. He does. And I, I think that's genius in one aspect because you're not, you are placating the Academy in one way and placating regular moviegoers. You're not inundating them with this Kill Bill style of blood and celebratory gore and over yeah. the top spurting blood everywhere. Like, you you don't have that here. This is a love letter for two hours and 30 something minutes, and then you get. 10 or 15, that's just classic Tarantino. (laughs) What you go to the movies to see a Tarantino movie for. The delivered goods that you expected going into this. And this was the major question we both had in the non-spoiler section in the preview. Mm -hmm. Was he going to rewrite history? And he kind of put in a bunch of red herrings in either direction leading up to that. The biggest scene for me was the Spawn Ranch sequence. Because you had... A, a sequence where Squeaky is telling you everything about George Spawn, right? And basically, it, they were... The she, war- they're, they're all acting wonderfully in that scene. Yeah, they're so suspicious. Yep. All the kids, and then Squeaky, yeah. we think yep. we're going to walk in on some corpse. They're out looking of the around, yeah. Back room of True Detective Season 1, mm-hmm. right? We don't expect to find Bruce Dern <laughs> literally <laughs> reciting everything Squeaky just said. Which is stupid on our part, because again, it's just a subversion of expectations. He made it so we wouldn't expect that, and of course that's what he delivers. That's what this guy has done his career. And then he writes out... Cliff and the dog at the beginning of the scene, right when that hunk of junk, that hunk of shit (laughs) is pulling up. The dog and Cliff are going on a walk, and then he's further neutralized by the acid cigarette. So we think this is leading towards disaster. I mean, he just does a lot of different things to make us think one way and then think the other way. No, he can't kill Sharon Tate after all this, but it's so, it's such a tribute. And we learned to love her so much that it's going to make the emotional impact so much more. I was thinking, if this was such an Oscar grab, you can go that direction and just make it such a tragedy at the end of it. 
but obviously that's not the way it was playing out. Right. As the movie was going along and I was laughing so much, I was like, that's probably not the way they're going to go. I think there would have, I think having Sharon Tate alive and rewriting the history in that way and saving her essentially is kind of a bit of a saving grace for him too in that I think there would be a lot more think pieces written about the brutality towards the women. And I understand they're Manson family women. I understand mm-hmm. they were there. They're cold-blooded murderers at that point. But I think it would have been awfully tough for him to have killed Sharon Tate and brutalized the Manson girls in that way. Women right. would have been treated awfully, awfully terribly had he not rewritten history in the way he did. There's a lot of articles out there, and, and like you said, think pieces, that make a lot of great points and say, why were the girls the last ones to be killed in this sequence? Why wasn't it Tex? Like, right. Tex was the worst of them, yeah. based on all the research I've done. Like, why not yep. kill him last? Why not flamethrow that fuck? You know, he's the wor- literally the worst of the Manson family there in Forster. Yep. No, he did. He did it the other direction. So again, but, but again, he did it to save Sharon Tate's life in this universe. Oh, these people are scum. Right. Exactly. Like, if you can't, so it, it, to me, anyway, I don't know how you feel about it personally, but to me, that kind of it's it's good and bad. It's it makes it more they're, okay. They're on the level of the evil and right. other movies. I mean, they're these are they're, murderers. These are, these evil, are cold-blooded evil. murderers. Evil people, and the only people that have been dying like this in Tarantino movies of late are the most evil. Yep. And he started that fact with the Yakuza. Mm-hmm. You know, they're pretty scummy. Uh, the gangsters. <laughs> they're pretty scummy, the Yakuza. scummy. Yeah, all right. Scummy. That's fair. <laughs> and he, going from there, you know, he hasn't been taking his thoroughly rounded characters and having bloodbaths with them necessarily. That's why The Hateful Eight was more like Reservoir Dogs. That was like not, the since, not since Death Proof, probably. I mean, Death Proof was rough. On yeah, the but heels de- of what it death was. proof. You know, cur- yeah, the, the the bad guys are bad, right? And we want them dead, and we want to see it, right? I mean, it, that's the whole action movie trope. It and, is, and this right. is really an action movie plot line, especially with that Spawn Ranch sequence. At the end of it, it's just to set up the final showdown. That's when I kind of knew there he was going to rewrite history because I knew there was going to have to be one more showdown between Cliff and, and Tex. Tex. Were you surprised this finale didn't take place in the Tate House? A little bit. I was a little, based solely on the movie and what Tarantino decided to do, I was a borderline shocked because you have, everything is alluding to that house throughout the movie for me, especially when Cliff's on the roof, right. he's hearing Sharon Tate's uh, music playing, Rick makes such a big deal, I live right next door to Roman Polanski, he could basically save my career if I'm there one day. Right. I thought everything was going towards that way, especially obviously since the history is in that house. It still was, in, in a way, because... Sharon Tate and the saving of those lives, even though they didn't know they were saving those mm-hmm. lives, those were the stakes of the film. Right. Not not just in an emotionally manipulative way, like we wanted Literally, yeah. them to be saved right. in this movie, and I think Tarantino knew that. That's why he gave such sentimental scenes for all those characters. But we, we also had the literal point you just brought up with Rick and Cliff talking about how his movie career could be saved if he gets like to know... that house is the oasis. His yeah, neighbors, right. yeah. If he, ju- if he just gets that intro, he's one pool party away right. from saving his career, and that's exactly what happens at the end where he gets the intro to Sharon. Right. Yeah, I think you I think you make a you make a fascinating point. I, I do th- so I think we find common ground here at least in saying that yes, it's Tarantino like, it's overly bloody, but it's at least done in a dare I say more mature and well-rounded way than historically Tarantino. The imperative of that scene is driven home by yet another preceding scene to it, the you know Rick Dalton telling off those would-be murderers in his driveway. What is the subtext there of how Tex acts in that scene? Is so, he just a coward? Now, Tex 
is number one, you can tell by his face, and the performance is really good. Like, he is at the height of his drug abuse. Yes, text. I agree. And I agree. If, you, if you do all the research, like, there's a couple months before, he had, like, a potato-sized, some kind of drug, some kind of herb. Once he had that, his brain was fucked. Mm. Like, once he ate, then he just, like, ate the whole thing, and the whole family was like, what the hell Jesus did you just Christ. do? And he was shot for mm. from then on. After, And then he was a speed addict. He was he was nuts and drugs. But don't he do that cowers to you. down. And I mean, drugs aside, I, I, and you're reciting fact here. But he cowers down in this movie directly in the face of confrontation. Yes. I mean, as Rick Rick approaches him the first time, he cocks the gun. Rick's gonna leave. He's you look like you think he might go shoot him there, and then now, Rick comes back in the net. Yeah, right. In the next scene, though, the girl in the front seat, the redheaded girl. I think that's Katie. Mm. Like Katie and Sadie. I always get it's Katie. Redheaded, it's Katie. So Katie goes to him. That was Rick Dalton. Mm. I wonder if he was recognizing him up there, even though... In a subconscious way. When he's down there, he's right. surprised when right. she says that to him. I, I love that sequence, though, because it, it drives home the imperative that we're going to change history and why we're going to change history and why the Mansons are going to change history, which also somehow lines up with the history of it because Tex has called audibles in the real-life story. Tex would get in trouble with, a, with gang members, and that was literally the, the, the spurring on of the race war, helter-skelter stuff that Manson thought because he thought this gang, all right, this African-American gang was coming mm -hmm. after the Manson family. Mm -hmm. And that's why he, he was like, he was like, we got to prepare for a race war. That's why he reportedly wrote the pig message at the oh end, real God. life and all this, yeah. All that stuff is based in historical fact. And then we have this scene where Rick Dalton, who just muttering under his breath at these hippies earlier in the film is actually walking out there yelling and he's getting in these kids' faces. And it, it's a great line when we get down there by Sadie. I'm getting her name right, I hope. Fuck you, Katie. Sorry, I don't know the name of every fascist on TV in the 50s. Yeah. And, that's, and then that sparks the whole argument. Of, Let's kill the people who taught us how to kill. We've been watching TV, learning about murder since we were young. Let's kill the And that's a great reason. That's yeah. one of the best reasons. And at least cinematically, never mind historically, but cinematically, right. it provides you with a fine enough context as to why the change is made in the final scene and why we're going to Rick's house now instead of Sharon Tate's. It also kind of validates Rick Dalton and Cliff's careers because oh, yeah. they're recognizable yeah. enough for these murderers, yeah. would-be murderers. Jay Sebring's not the only one who knows who Rick Dalton is in the finale it's here. It's like audible, <laughs> yeah. Right. That's amazing. I, I, I love all three of those scenes, how they, how they built this up, and it's just, just crazy. Since we're here at the end, I don't even know how to classify this. I put it as literally classic, I guess, but I'm not really sure. That's how it is in my notes. The timestamps... Of the night of the murders, on first watch, they're akin to a ticking clock, mm -hmm. right? Like, they're like a countdown because of what we all know historically happened and the time frame that these murders actually happened El Coyote in. Restaurant. Right. These are all events. I mean, we know the murders take place a little after midnight. We know all the, the right. historically, this is all fact that we can research. And yet, on rewatch, right, what the hell is the point of the timestamps? I think it's building the suspense. You always want a ticking clock. In your movies, they they teach you that in screenwriting school, and they're if if you know that it's just after midnight, then when it reads ten o'clock, we're feeling uh oh right, and when they come home at a little you know half after eleven, we're like uh oh here it comes. But because 
we know the imperative is kind of taken away on rewatch. I, I think it's another purposeful misdirect by him because it's set up. Kurt Russell's voiceover in doing you know, at ten at ten forty five. Sharon Tate arrived yeah. back at his door. Rick and Cliff stumbled in close to eleven thirty. Like it's so true crime story and right. like investigation Discovery Channel like setup. It, it's a red herring. Yeah, actually making. I, that's think. how I feel about it. I think it's another level of just something that's kind of genius because he knows. That he's setting you up for a misdirect there. It wouldn't have fit with the first half of the movie, which is mostly a comedy. Yeah. So once it was mostly a comedy, I didn't figure he was going to go the true crime heavy end of the I movie. I didn't either. Yeah. You know, but kill the real people and be sad about watch, it. On first watch, we get that. And I was like, oh, maybe we are going this route. To me, at the end of the film, though, it's still very sad. Like, we can only watch this Sharon Tate from on high, from a distance. Once upon a time in Hollywood, the title card flashes at the very end of it uh, or at the very beginning of their meeting rather and we know it's all bs and i think tarantino's like this is a fantasy this is not right. the reality this is this is very sad and you end with the sad music and it's it's a what could have been kind of thing sure, certainly i mean it's old hollywood meeting new hollywood it's rick dalton having a chance to become the fonda douglas nicholson dennis hopper leading man of the future you know he can connect with a hot director could he have that burt reynolds career he has the burt reynolds hair at that point Maybe he could. I don't know. How about the subtext, too, just to go along those lines of what you just laid out, that Rick Dalton's gotten most of his parts based on looks, and he goes against, speaking of New Hollywood, the Trudy character, who's method acting on the set of this nothing Western from eight years of age and kind of showing him up as far as an artist already. When I talk about New Hollywood taking over, and this is where we did the Daniel Day-Lewis's of our age and people that we celebrate now that are kind of veterans in the field that are known for doing that after a, the golden age of Hollywood had passed. And that whole sequence there, we'll get to it in more detail, but that's the first time he's changed his look. Like, in his right. look in every show. If I'm whatever. wearing all this junk. Yeah. <laughs> 1950s, you just had the slick back hair mm -hmm. and a regular, you know, hero you look. You were who you were. You were J.K. Cahill. Yeah. A big Sabata-like mustache. <laughs> I and fucking love Hippie Sam hair. <laughs> yeah, Sam Waterman is great. All right, Mike, you got something classic. The most classic thing, aside from the over-the-top violence, that Tarantino does to me, that I've actually seen people think was just a, a means to an end of a one-off joke, which I cannot wrap my head around, is the tangent that he takes us on for the whole Bruce Lee encounter when Cliff is on the roof fixing Rick's antenna. <laughs> I mean, this is something he's done in Kill Bill. He did it one other time. He takes us on these rides yep. during the mundane, shows us something spectacular and over the top, in this case, establishing Cliff as a tough, not only a tough guy that can take on Bruce Lee, so you know he can handle himself in the face of the Manson family, but also, as you said, the reason that Cliff is free for the day to get to Spawn Ranch at the end of that encounter. But this is exactly what Tarantino has done in other times. It just is a way of his dumping exposition in the middle of a mundane, nothing-happening part of the movie. So the B-story hero is Cliff. And the B story plotline, this is the quote-unquote call to adventure kind of, you know, in the hero's journey, right? This is kind of the debating the call or whatever you want to call that or however you want to caption that. Brad Pitt is basically deciding on whether or not he should go back to where he, where he came from and try and get a job right. or if he can reconcile with the fact that, all right, Fair enough. Right. <laughs> you know, I shouldn't have this job. So then he's going to basically joyride or he's just going to go and wait 
or whatever he was going to do. Who knows? So that's why he has hours of free <laughs> right. time to go drive this girl to Spawn Ranch, like you said. But this is exactly what we did in Kill Bill Volume 1. When we, I mean, we're dealing with the bride in the back of a pussy wagon saying, move your big toe. And then, oh, by the way, I'm going to introduce a manga cartoon of Oren Ishii's yeah. background while we're waiting on this to happen. She's buried alive. And, oh, by the way, here's how she's Exa- going to get exactly, out of being buried Exactly. Alive. That's the other movie I couldn't think of at the time. Yes, exactly. This is from Kill Bill. This yeah. is the exact trope. I have it listed in classic as well. I, I do think that one take is incredible. For that I, Bruce I, Lee encounter? I rewatched it, and I was wrong. I misspoke in the uh, non-spoiler section. The first actual real stunt was slamming him into the car, yes. and that was the first actual real cut. So I wonder if the end of the big, long monologue, I wonder if he didn't get his best kick to the chest of Brad Pitt there. That wasn't their best take, but it was the best of right, the re- rest they, of the take. they had, yeah. yeah. It could be. It's a good point. That's something I did criticize early. I also read Bruce Lee's daughter had an issue with the way her father was portrayed in this film. I gotta say, having seen some Bruce Lee stuff and heard him talk and give these speeches, it, it felt kind of authentic to what I usually see, but yeah. I know that's a loaded campaign. He's portrayed as being an arrogant blowhard a little bit. In that to... scene. He's yeah. also the guy that's training Sharon Tate later Correct. in the movie of his own recognizance. And he's so... friends with right. Jay Sebring. And, he, and he's shown to be uh, a cool guy that everybody likes exactly. in that crew. Exactly. Even within that scene. And the guy's like, oh, by the way, right. this guy's kind of famous. <laughs> yeah, this guy's kind of famous, Bruce. <laughs> uh, I'm going to kind of backtrack a little Go bit. Ahead. I think the sequence, the end of Act 1 sequence, you have Cliff and the dog, you have Rick reciting his lines, and you have Sharon to the play boy mansion sharon and roman to the playboy mansion mike you have a crane shot that lifts from leo reciting his lines after we watch him prepare the whiskey sours which egg whites and a whiskey sour you got to get your protein somewhere my mother was appalled when she recognized that i asked her i was like does this happen in the 60s if all you do is drink you gotta you gotta (laughs) people do this all the time like if you do kegs and eggs freaking raw eggs and he's only putting egg whites because he's worried about his weight yeah he's on keto (laughs) so we have uh this new and old hollywood juxtaposition the tv actor is doing the nine to five and he's going to bed and you have the literally the, the crane over the pool to the the polanski's house yeah polanski's house and then they joyride down down the cielo drive the same way that cliff does we get these same exact shots so not only is it you got the old hollywood versus new hollywood but you just had all the cliff and his dog scenes which we talked about we loved which was the same kind of drive out. Mm-hmm. So you see you see all three versions of, of the Hollywood. You see the working man barely hanging on. He's really a hangers-on because he's just his, his driver. Sure, yeah, he's and a gopher. He's a gopher. And then you got Rick's life, and then you got these guys. The different tiers of celebrity right there within a nutshell. And that's what helps what makes you. It's a point you made in part one. Yeah. Hollywood is kind of like the sandbox that Tarantino's playing in. It's not the sprawling metropolis. It's a really confined space because we're seeing the same streets by all different walks of life. But back to Kill Bill again, you have a great montage sequence. And you have a lot in this movie. You have that montage sequence with the five, six, seven, eights, right? Mm-hmm. This reminded me of that with its glorious dance scene. Good point. Again, the you know the high arcing camera on the crane over the top of the dance scene, just like all the people in the five, six, seven, eights. Just like we'll see it later on to compare and contrast what really happens at the end of the crazy eighty-eight scene. Was that drag that Damian Lewis does, Steve McQueen does, of the cigarette before saying they never had a chance scripted or not? <laughs> I don't know. I love that scene. I thought he really. Did, did his best Steve McQueen. I really liked him as Steve Steve McQueen. I, I 
didn't dislike it either. I'm with you. And I also was debating with myself, is it necessary? Is this a superfluous scene? I settled on it's necessary because otherwise, I think you would have had to give Polanski's characters lines. You would have been, yeah, and you would have been wondering about the whole love triangle thing between Jay and Roman. Why is Jay there at the end? And yeah. that was fascinating. But that whole sequence is like a joyful sequence, right? It's, it's I'm the son one, of a loving man. I, when I watched this my second time, it was right after I did all the Manson family documentary research. I, like, teared up. Yeah, you needed that upper. To see Sharon Tate actually, after watching all the photos, and oh my God. And how about Margot Robbie's dancing? My Lord, talk about being in 1969. She's grooving like at a disco. She was so awesome. She's amazing. <laughs> Even, I, this is why I don't want to hear her role was minimalized. Because she was stellar in everything she did in this movie. Without dialogue, yep. she's pulling a lot of different things off. And she's friends with Mama Cass and, and the Mamas right and there, the Papas. Yep. It's something Michelle. I didn't even see until the fourth time I saw it, by the right. way. Um, did Tarantino dress Polanski in that outfit to make fun of Austin Powers? Or did he do it because, like Chris Ryan said, when you Google Roman Polanski, Sharon Tate, that's the outfit Roman Polanski's wearing in the first Google image search. Yeah, the latter. The latter? All right. Definitely. I thought it was Austin Powers. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I, I keep going back because i got a few more classics yeah. here. So... Let's go into Leo on the job, because Act 2 is a day in the life. The entirety of Act 2 is one day. I thought that that's not classic Tarantino, I, but it yeah. blew my mind. I would argue that the movie is a day in the life, but yeah, go ahead. But The movie's two and a half, and a half days? Two and a half days. In the life. So, Leo with that little girl, we already mentioned her performance, but this was my favorite because it was so quiet, and all of the just grunts and coughs and spits you turned leonardo dicaprio the foremost sex symbol male sex you symbol turned the of guy from age, blood diamond into robert de niro into a hulking <laughs> disgusting beast yeah. of a disgusting man i could not get all that's something i pointed out to my brother on one of my watches i'm like just listen to how many noises leo emits sitting down in this chair it killed me <laughs> every time he would do something it just killed me and it you know Makes sense, because he was drinking all night. Eight goddamn whiskey sours. And this is, I know you have issues with the length of the amount of time we're spent on the Lancer set. So this is where I'm a hypocrite, because I love the length of this scene. I don't love the length Everything of the about Lancer, I wouldn't change. I really wouldn't. I just revel in it. I think it's where Leo's at his most playful. I can't get mad at you, though, because it is a lot of fun. Oh, my God. I, I, I'm I have, my ass I have off. a quibble, but it's yeah. fun. And, and that's a great scene. That is a typical Tarantino scene, where she's got all these sly lines. Sure. I don't know. Would you bother me? Yeah. <laughs> that's like the greatest line of the movie. I love the way she said that. I think that's what she was talking about when she learned from Leo, say a line a little bit differently than the audience would She expect. does a lot. Of, and having seen this on my fourth time again, I'm sorry if I keep bringing that up, but after talking, doing, recording part one with you and listening to what you said about her being mentored by Leo and say this differently, do that differently, try it this way, and then watching her spot in this movie again she's doing so many little things she leans back at one point they're delivering a line she cocks her head back when she's gonna complain to him about her calling him pumpkin puss you can see her eye roll a little bit but she's trying to play restraint because she knows the guy's upset she's clearly she's the most it. mature yeah. person in that conversation she's killing it and you have the whole dialogue the story within the story the on the nose yep. connection right. between his real life and that makes him cry again and, and even that like we have the most mature eight-year-old girl in the world, right? right? But she's still eight years old, so she can't possibly understand what he's actually suffering from in describing the easy breezy story. Mm -hmm. So she thinks he's just sad about the story, the actual book, whereas he knows it's 
relating to his life as an aging actor. And so she says, hey, I didn't even read it yet, and I feel bad for Easy Breezy yeah, after getting this him. Mature, right, it's, it's, so, it's so good. And it brings up one of the thematic essentials of the film, Walt Disney. Walt Disney rewrote fairy tales. This was in a Slash Film article oh, this morning. I like this. And I love this article because Tarantino rewrites history the same way Walt Disney rewrite, rewrote fairy tales. And I think this is like one of those... I don't want to say guilty pleasures, but just one of those pleasures of cinema. And we should have noticed this how many times, you know, we've seen it before we noticed it. That took that slash film article, but I I just thought well, that that's, was and that's, a hugely important thing. I, I, I totally co-sign. That's what what I mean. I feel like this is one of these movies you could watch it seventeen times and you're still gonna miss something. So yeah, without question. Another big classic. It's the way the Al Pacino scene plays out. It's coming off the another montage, which is classic as well, from the airport. I loved all that, and Sharon Tate is dancing throughout this movie. I loved panning, introducing her the first time. She's dancing to the, right at the top of the yeah. floor of the air, the airplane. All right, fine. We get uh, to Musso and Frank's, and Al Pacino does this negotiation scene that's awesome that's it, trademark tarantino all day you get anecdotes in that sequence to the flamethrower which is Chekhov's flamethrower we come to learn i love that 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 was introduced right away that's one shit fuck of a crazy dangerous <laughs> weapon that you don't want to be on the other side on. I, 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 I trained three hours two weeks with that dragon <laughs> loved it it's a funny anecdote but it also fits within the scene and then it's going to play through later that reminded me of Hugo Stiglitz. Sure. The Bastards. It reminded me Kill Bill introducing the French assassin. Sure. I think one of the more underrated things I'm learning as we discuss about this is a lot of people have positioned this movie as the equivalent or like the, the spiritual successor to Jackie Brown. And I don't think that's incorrect. But I think if you go deep into this, mm-hmm. there's a lot of Kill Bill in this movie. Yeah. Surprisingly. Because I don't think you would notice that at first blush. I don't think that's by accident either because... I don't either. This is the These are the creators of the movie movie universe. The movie movie universe, the centerpiece Good of that point. universe in Tarantino's 10 film filmography are the two Kill Bill movies. Otherwise, you just have what? You just have... Is Death Proof movie movie? We think so. It's, there's an argument online. An ar- it depends, it, it yeah. better be. Right. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> and then From Dust Till Dawn. That's it, yeah. So I think that's interesting. I also would say some of the feministic tones of this movie, how Sharon Tate is the not only the stakes, but she's the conscious and the light of this movie. As you can argue that Beatrix Kiddo is at points. Obviously, she has a lot more to overcome because she is the main protagonist of those two films, but it's not exactly an apples-to-apples comparison. But I think there is enough there that you can argue about. I think that's just fascinating to me. I agree. I wanted to just kind of look back at this whole rewatch for a half a second here, Mike. You know, when we talked about classic Tarantino, trademark Tarantino, in other episodes, we pretty much, most of that's dialogue obsessed, mm-hmm. right? We're talking about his dialogue. We mentioned a few moments where the dialogue plays through. Like, we mentioned the Al Pacino scene a little bit. We mentioned the scene with Julia Butters and then the little Steve McQueen thing. Otherwise, the dialogue is not the star. It's all these... Editorial, directorial, good cinematography, goods, and that's, good I, that's why I said in the last episode, it's like this feels more like a directorial showcase, more like a composition that he wants recognized than just I'm showing off as a screenwriter. Yeah, and yet again, is that purposeful? Because like we say and we'll discuss, a major not a majority, but a fair amount of this film is mm-hmm. set on a fifty set 
for a 50 show where we talked about last episode, the dialogue in real life on those shows was horrible. horrible. <laughs> it's horrible in here, too. Exactly. That's what I mean. It's purpose. <laughs> so he can't make that dialogue shine because it doesn't shine. That's not what the point of it was. And that's my first sneaky classic underrated, if you're ready for that. I think all the bounty law, FBI clips, the old TV interview to start the film. We have Brad Pitt. You're wondering why Brad Pitt's not a star. Brad Pitt's staring at the camera. The whole <laughs> setup of that first interview. You, you see what Rick's doing. That, yeah. Rick is looking at the guy yeah. who's speaking. Brad Pitt is literally <laughs> just goofy-eyed staring at the camera. That's exactly what you're not supposed yeah. to do. All right. Uh, I wish the payoff to, to the opening scene wasn't necessarily in the trailer because I would have enjoyed it more on the spot. But, like I said, I still laughed about it. In other Tarantino movies, we get grindhouse trailers. We have Nation's Pride and Glorious Bastards. We have a few times where it's the movie in the movie, mm-hmm. but it never plays this long. And no. this, we, we sit down and watch FBI with these right. guys. Like, we sit down and watch long scenes from whatever uh, movies on, on the screen. Uh, he's quoted in one of his interviews saying he shot basically a full episode of Bounty Law. He hasn't. He just used the one cut of the guy dropping to the ground for the opening. But he has basically a full scene of Bounty Law shot and in his canister. We see trailers of Operationi Dynamite. <laughs> Are you kidding me? We yeah, basically see the whole yeah, trailer. We see, we see, and we see a part of it. Yeah, the, the jump. So th- this was, it's a sneaky classic because he's done it a little bit in other movies, but it's it's something he does a lot in this movie. I think that's a great point. I also think and will not be convinced otherwise. We know Tarantino's a guy that injects his personal story and his his life into his movies. We've talked about this at length at times. I will not be convinced otherwise that he's not taking a shot at Martin Scorsese in this movie. Yeah, so so explain this to me. So, how many years in history have Scorsese and Tarantino released a film? And Scorsese is the guy, right? Scorsese's the director's director. He's the filmmaker. And Tarantino's kind of the embattled guy. And he's been a little too goofy for Academy consideration. He's not really taken all that seriously. And, in Scor- and Tarantino's the one that's been hooked into all this controversy. Some of it by his own doing. Some of it by who he's related to, etc. Sure. So Scorsese's going to come out with a movie this year. An Oscars contender this year. You're stirring shit up right that, now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 100%. That he's worked millions of millions of dollars on. He's worked years on. And it's taken over budget. And it's gone through Netflix. It's this big deal. And it's all de-aging technology. So what's Tarantino doing his Oscars movie, his personal love letter movie that he's worked years on? I'm going to put Leo in The Great Escape, shot for shot, remake, Put him literally in this. I'm not going to use the aging, but I'll use different kind of technology that looks like he's from 1960s mm-hmm. in the Steve McQueen picture and put him right in to interact with other characters. And I'm going to do it better than what I think Scorsese can put on screen. I will not be convinced otherwise that that whole... Because it's out of nowhere. It right. serves no purpose. You can have the talk about The Great Escape and the impact it has on Rick Dalton's character and talking with Timothy Oliphant's character without actually seeing him daydreaming himself within that film. That doesn't serve any purpose other than Tarantino doing a muscle flex saying, look what I can do. Yeah, it's like a fantasy for Rick, what could have been. Exactly. I I guess it plays in the plot a little bit, leading into that sequence where he's going to struggle, right? You have to kind of make it, force it to make sense for you. As to otherwise, I think this is just him saying, I'm going to do what you're going to do. I'm going to do it first. I'm going to probably do it better, and I'm going to make it more impressive. 
It could be. It could be sturdy. I, I can't be convinced otherwise, especially we happen to be recording this on the day that we had our first trailer for The Irishman finally come out. Right. All that being said, I love the FBI sequence. I mean, I thought that was awesome. Oh, I mean, beautiful. It's so much better than anything actually created in that age. You have the shot through the broken side mirror. I wonder if SNL has ruined Californians for me. Because I had this written down as classic Californians, how they talk about, you know, they have the big drive through the mountainside there. And what are, what are Cliff and Rick talking about? Hey, is that Pacific Coast Highway? He's like, yeah, it's some canyon down in Malibu. Talking about directions, talking about where they are. And it's straight out of the Californians SNL sketch. Where you take 305, you go straight down north. You know, that's how about it the to me. Right. So I don't know. Yeah, I love the, the side commentary. Yeah, that was Bobby Hoagie. Good guy. <laughs> that guy's a fucking prick. Yeah. The other guy did like smoothly <laughs> if i actually leap somewhere i want somebody you know behind me saying smoothly and it just yeah, to their buddy and i don't need to hear it but right i want it to be i want it to be said i got your back just jump, uh, just jump. i don't know if i can uh in the operationi dynamite trailer i can't remember this happening before but the freeze frame with the arrow and the cliff and the bell I don't know where that's happened before. I know it's happened. So why do we let him do this, man? Why is it okay when Tarantino does whatever he wants? Is it just because he's dabbled in every genre? And we're like, whatever, just take us on a ride. Because it makes us laugh, right? I mean, and that maybe, I, I laughed at it when maybe, I was yeah. Cliff. Yeah. <laughs> you you could be stuff. right. Bottom line, you can do whatever you want creatively. <laughs> if it makes the audience laugh, you can do it. The comedy is another sneaky Tarantino thing. Speaking of making us laugh, I mean, we were talking about before we hit record. Right. This may be Leo's, Wolf of Wall Street included, this may be Leo's funniest performance. It's really freaking funny, and I'd never had Leo pulling off a southern accent like this before, right? I've never seen him with such comedic timing over and over and over again. You're right, yeah. In, in an accent, no less. But, my lord, I mean, the scene in the trailer alone, which is apparently ad-libbed and written on the spot because Leo suggested to Tarantino, according to Tarantino in one of the interviews, that Leo felt Rick Dalton needed... A comeback here, mm-hmm. not just to return the set as if he was off a victory, but he needed something to return the set motivated to do. And so he has that flip. <laughs> you listen to me right now. You don't get your lines right. Oh my God. I'm going to blow your fucking brains out. <laughs> Dying. That was crazy. Hey, Whiskey Sour. <laughs> the third time I've quoted that. You could have to stop at three or four. That scene was funny. It was sad. He's having yeah. a nervous breakdown in that scene, which was built. They were building up to that where he's like, all right, I'm almost 40. I have no family. My career's going down the shitter. You know, you know I related to Leo throughout this. Oh, sure. I related to him. I think anybody that's, that's suffered any kind of professional hardship could. Totally. And, you know, we start a podcast. He actually gets his eggs up. To Same stakes. Go, you know, do another scene. <laughs> Same and, stakes. And maybe stop, quit drinking. Uh, Mike, I think that Rick Dalton's character is also funny in his own right because he's playing the game he's, he's able to shoot the shit i mean just with the ambulance drivers he's like uh you're probably gonna have to come back here to wake her up <laughs> after labor day and then, <laughs> a joke that your wife might have just od'd and then he's at the restaurant and he's like say hi to your wife how's your wife it's like yeah he's cracking he's cracking jokes the whole time and it's more than just rick and this is another thing that tarantino has been on record not in this movie but in others we've talked about in the production saying that he wants you to laugh at the inappropriate and he thinks that's when he get you unfortunately he terms it as you're his co-conspirators after that point that's his words not ours but in in a way it's kind of true like because we're all laughing
laughing at these really... Were none of us laughing when Cliff was bashing that girl's head in? I mean, it's horribly inappropriate, but it's done in a funny way. It's overkill. Right. <laughs> 12 bashes. Right. So, yeah, you know what? It does do something to us in that way, I think, psychologically anyway. Absolutely. My favorite scene of the movie. I didn't know where to put this. I don't know if this is un-Tarantino, classic, or sneaky. My favorite scene of the movie is the finale of that Lancer scene with the girl as the hostage and they have the the stupid joke and then it ends with Sam Wanamaker saying, give me evil, sexy Hamlet. evil, sexy Hamlet. (laughs) It's the greatest. And Luke Perry is awesome in that scene. Just being the straight man in that scene. That that is like a perfect scene. That's actually one of the better written scenes of Lancer. Agreed. (laughs) Agreed. By far. The triple alliterative improv. (laughs) All of it. It's also funny if you watch any Leo Leo talking about Luke Perry and obviously Luke Perry had unfortunately passed prior to this movie's release but Leo said the only one of the only times during his professional career he was starstruck was seeing Luke Perry on set for this movie hmm. because when Leo's upbringing what was the hottest show on television 90210 who was the star of 90210 was Luke Perry so he was like I had this feeling inside me. I couldn't understand what it was. And I realized, wait a minute, I think I'm starstruck right now <laughs> going up to Luke Perry. So it's kind of cool to see him working with, I guess, one of his heroes in a sort of, sort of way. Absolutely. Okay, so to finish out this underrated section, I have three more quick things. Margot Robbie at the Bruin Theater is a story from Tarantino's real life. We mentioned that in a non-spoiler yes. section. It's a story of him going to see True Romance with a, with a girlfriend. It meant a lot to him. By the way, the balls on that move. Hey, honey, you want to go see a movie I wrote? So not only, yeah, th- does the egomania <laughs> sit in, but he's done these things before not to spend $15 or whatever. He's asked the, the, you know, the co- for a mm-hmm. copy of the 5, 6, 7, 8s and the Kill Bill mm-hmm. pre-production story Good there. Point. But he, he does this in his movies where he'll have... John Travolta coming from Amsterdam telling Amsterdam stories. There's there's countless versions that we've mentioned. That's in a our, great point. Our series. That's a great point. Sneaky classic that he gives and he gives a scene to Margot Robbie, Sharon Tate character. How can you know Ter- Sharon Tate? We were wondering that last time. Like, how can you know her? Every single thing about her since the murders has been like she's an angel, right? Yeah. You don't get a rounded character of Sharon Tate. Even her family speaks glowingly about her. Of course they would. Who's going to tell us Sharon Tate's peccadilloes? You're absolutely right, yeah. So how does he make her rounded a little bit? Well, she's got dirty-ass feet, snores, and she maybe dances too much, and then she's a little pushy trying to get out of spending $10 at the movies, like Tarantino was in his real life. He gives her his own story. So you think... Because this is one of the scenes I was struggling most with. I cannot place it for me. You think the scene of her snoring actually goes to her being more personable? He does that with... It's like all these affectations in this movie. We're going to hit on this in, uh, I think, on Tarantino. Yeah. Like the snoring women, the first sipping of a newly made drink. (laughs) Rick's coughing and spitting and heavy breathing. Yeah. It's like adding to all... It's almost like in The Godfather... They're making all the food, and you can smell the food. Right, and eating it, take a bite yeah. of the cannoli. Yeah. I, I mean, I take it to food, but it's all these visceral things that make you know these people a little more, relate right. to these people a little more. I don't know. No, I could be talked into that because I, I, it's just one of, the, and it's such a throwaway scene. Almost, it's the one scene where Polanski gets does get a close up. It's or directly after that, it's the one kind of gratuitously sexual scene. We're panning up Margot Robbie's sleeping body. Right. 
I really had a problem with it because he does show a lot of restraint in a lot of other areas. So why let those two back to back slide? So he's fetishistic a little bit with his. You camera, think? Right about he feet, is. especially about feet. But this is like we're getting into unta- this is like a fuck you with the feet, it, which is a point that the ringer yeah. made. Chris Sean Fennessy and Chris Ryan. I could not agree more. You think I like feet? I, right. uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I even like these yeah, feet. I'll show you, you feet. <laughs> I'll show you feet. Uh, that was Agreed. my worst. That was a worst seat for me, by the way, or worst whatever. Because come on, I know you're fighting dirty, Tarantino. We can't control what you're putting in your movie. We have to watch this anyway. Uh, I love that Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth Italy montage. I I, I, gu- I gushed about this already in the non-spoilers. I just want to say again, it's one of the best montages I've ever seen. Picking up his dog, coming back. It's really awesome. Just the walk from the airport. That's the Francesca's Rolling Stones dress. playing out of time. There It was really really classic. That's almost as classic as some of the stuff before the uh, Ray Liotta character does get in the car and Scorsese's good fellas and drives yes. away and notices the choppers overneath when he is making it. Like, it, it's it's certain montages that'll stick with you, but they're really, if you think about it, montages of non-import. Mm. Really? I mean, getting back to, to Rick's house isn't really a critical moment in this scene whatsoever. In this movie, I should say. Mm-hmm. but And yet, it's going to stick with us just because it's so well done. It's phenomenal. Yeah. And it, it kind of is telling us that everybody's going to die, right? Because they're out of time, literally. So another red herring. Yet again, he's putting a red herring (laughs) to keep us guessing. Finally, we have another Mexican standoff, and it's done in a joking way. We have Tex. And it's classic Tarantino. Right. It's your protagonist being calm in the face of unworldly danger, like Beatrix Kiddo is at times. Tex, gun in his face, Cliff trying to defuse it, or is he just tripping? He's tripping. <laughs> but he's, he's also, like, you see, like, awareness coming onto his face at times. Clearly. So, I, mean, I mean, clearly he's aware of the situation. He's yeah. trying to defuse things. He's trying to, I know you guys. Now they're like, he's trying to you scare the kids. You were a horsey. <laughs> yeah. Now I was dumber than that. <laughs> but you have him laughing hysterically, and you have Tex laughing hysterically, because he's holding the gun on Cliff, and Cliff's Pointing his finger at Tex, and laughing, yeah, and laugh. So again, Mexican standoff, Tarantino ending a movie with some kind of standoff, which is every time, which is classic and kind of underrated in the fact that this one, the only real gun to gun to gun Mexican standoff he's really had in the traditional sense Res- of the phrase is Reservoir Dogs. Dogs. That was Everything his first else has movie. been a play on a Mexican standoff almost. In the first movie, he took it straight up, and everything else, right? Yeah, has yeah been, I think that's a, a very a twist good, on it. Very good point worth highlighting by you. All right, so on Tarantino, Mike, you have a bunch of things. So the restraint this guy shows, and this is kind of my working thesis throughout this, is that this is his love letter. This is the picture he's cared probably most about. If you do the research, since maybe Inglorious Bastards, it's been in his mind a lot, and mm-hmm. he is the embattled director. He has been through the ringer of controversy and kind of made it out the other side. Not unscathed, certainly, but there's a highly critical eye towards him, but he's still allowed to work in Hollywood, unlike a lot of other people that have been involved in the Me Too movement. Yeah, we, we talked about it. He's not, he's not that monster. Right. He's not he's Harvey not Weinstein. He's not, he's we not the alleged... Yeah, exactly, yeah. Good. yeah. We have to cover our bases because this is the times we live in. With that said... I do think this is his most restrained on film ever. He's trying to be overly protective of the women in this film, I feel like, which I know is a joke, and you can kind of poke fun at that with the way the Manson girls are it's treated. Chivalric. At the end. Yeah. But until, he, well, until you get to the bad bad people, it, he just who are evil, people. who he's trying to yeah. kill to save Sharon Tate's life anyway. Right. I mean, he gives a nod to Sharon Tate feeling pregnant in all the worst ways. He gives a nod to when Trudy is thrown down, right? Even when Trudy's thrown down on set within the context of a television show, mm-hmm. he has the scene following that where she 
explains away. I that's fine. I do this on my I own anyway. Pads I'm padded on. right now. I throw myself <laughs> down. For, he yeah. he, t- he goes above and beyond to explain away every sort of objection when it comes to a way a woman can be treated, which he needs to do, in my opinion. Because to me, if he's treating women poorly in this movie, one, it's going to be he's going to be crucified for. It. He's got no shot at an Oscar. I think that ex- that goes as far as the way he wrote the Roman Polanski character, yeah. because Roman Polanski is obviously this box of dynamite for Quentin Tarantino. Mm-hmm. And for those of you who don't know, we have talked about this. Tarantino was on record on the Howard Stern show years ago, basically, for lack of a better term, defending Tar- uh, Roman Polanski's relationship at one point. Yeah, at one point where he's apologized, it's and about he has it since. Back since. I'm going to talk about it in a minute and worse as well because so, it bothers me. If Roman Polanski was an actual character in this movie, mm. having any line of dialogue, d- playing with any of these characters, right, it's going to be criticized to death, right? I mean, it's going to be yeah. analyzed 18 ways from Sunday. And we're going to try to find, because he is that director, Tarantino now, is that guy who puts so much of himself into all of his films, we're going to see things that either are there or aren't if he gives Polanski any kind of stage. So Polanski is really just nothing more than I than idea. If this wasn't the Sharon Tate story and this was just Love Letter 1969 Hollywood, I'm of the opinion Polanski wouldn't be here at all. He has to be because it's his house and it's Sharon Tate, his wife. Yeah, he's a symbol. He, and right. He's a, a means to an end. He's a device. He's mostly just an idea. So I think that's purposely done and I think that on top of acknowledging the chivalristic aspects of this on top of you have the scene where pussycat's leaning through the car talking to brad pitt's character and we go back and forth with the camera and yes she's a bent over woman and we do see her from behind but her backside is not even in focus it's blurred out a little bit she's just you're concentrating on pitt in the conversation he shows you know is he is he the feministic hero no but he's he's got yeah. more tact than previously. I started talking about it before. He is fetishistic, but like we've seen a ton of male film directors have a ton of nudity in their films. Like this is not And we've seen worse from him. And he doesn't have nudity in his films very often. No, but fetishistic, even yeah. about the feet. Jackie Brown, this there's was a worse a, scene. But this was a joke on the foot fetish thing. This whole movie. Right, yes. This so a play on my, my take is that either restraint, tact, maturity, right. whatever. Right. I feel like he's covering his bases. And you can here. write in all of the chivalry that mm-hmm. is, when it goes right, it, people are aggravated with it, rightfully so. And when it goes wrong, and when it's, you know calling her pumpkin puss she gets up right in his That's face another example and he shows her yep. getting up right back in his face but then you show her being more mature than he right. is in that scene now that's also kind of a commentary about this old school guy you were it works True. into the plot True. and it works into these characters even to the point where we're going to talk about in a few minutes with by the old scene. school guy you mean rick dalton i mean the old school man of the 1950s right yeah 1950s not tarantino guy. though yeah right yeah, yeah. That 1950s guy, and then these characters act like that 1950s guy right. for good and for for better or for worse in a way. Uh, my first three on Tarantino things, Mike, I mentioned already, so I'm just going to gloss over them really quick. That Manson family ranch sequence is so strange. This is the biggest on Tarantino, other on Tarantino thing to me, other than the restraint. I feel he does show okay, is so you that got more on it. <laughs> I've been begging for a Quentin Tarantino horror movie, and we get it for about five minutes in this movie, and yet it's all a setup for misdirect a misdirection. It's the weirdest thing. Like, he's done things like this before in Inglorious Bastards, where what happens in the scene is what we are told is going to happen in the scene, but we don't believe him right. because he's subverted our expectations mm-hmm. before. 
So I guess in that way it's sneaky classic, but not the way this one's done. Because he's this playing the, the radiogram from the, the torn curtain by Bernard Herrmann to set the stage as he's looking at a rat <laughs> trapped in a trap out there in this dingy, disgusting house. You think this is the end of True Detective Season 1? Going down a dark hallway. You, you, There's no way that I was watching the scene the first time that I'm thinking there's not going to be a fight at the end of this. He still gives us that fight, but it's a much more falling action kind of a fight. It's let's set up the, the showdown with text mm-hmm. kind of a fight. Yeah. I talked about very the, un-Tarantino, I would agree. the un-Tarantino affectations. They were just weird to me. I, I guess they mean something. I don't know what they really mean. Like why all the sipping of the drinks, like the, the whistling. He does that like three or four times. He... <laughs> The only thing I can think of is that food has played a big role in his latter movies, and he does show Brad Pitt just enjoying every liquid in front of him in this movie. The bottomless Bloody Mary on that he takes a big sip out of the the scene where Cliff's letting or Rick's letting Cliff go in Italy. He takes a big sip out of the tea that just hits the table. There's like ten seconds when we first meet these guys after the big tough guy walk into <laughs> Musso and Frank's. They sit down. They <laughs> one's got a big bloody comically Mary. large bloody and Mary. Then, and then he's like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's the goofiest thing. The two guys after the big montage. Uh, Maybe that was the reason. Anyway, the abrupt forward cuts between Rick Dalton and Lancer leading man Timothy Oliphant. I haven't seen him do that before. That's a yada, yada, yadaing the plot device. But just to get to the great escape stuff, that was weird. You know what I realized on my fourth watch? He does that one other time in this movie, and it's when Cliff's making mac and cheese. Oh, really? He just cuts forward to the mac and cheese process to get him to sit down to feed his dog. I don't know what significance that has. But it's like a, a jarring cut. I forget what they call that right, kind of a cut. Right, right, where he's not wearing a hat and then he is. Yes, I agree. It's more noticeable in the Oliphant scene, yes. I guess maybe it's done in uh, Death Proof for, for comedy, I guess. Sure. Whatever. Take your word for it. <laughs> the, the long setups for the jokes, uh, I've never seen him go that long in a scene for a one joke. I know you said this was a classic thing and I agreed with you there, but the fact that it was for a big joke, he's never done that before. Brad Pitt coming out of the flashback saying, fair enough. Right, yes, that, yes. The, that part, Agree. The, the, that payoff. He Agree, hasn't, he hasn't Agree. It has, it's not usually, it's usually set up for exposition's sake and just, right. you know, we're seeing Owen and she, his family get murdered, so that's why she's got this chip on her shoulder. <laughs> we're not seeing Brad Pitt beat up Bruce Lee and that's why he's asked to leave a set. It also works as a misdirection, though, because you're basically, you realize Brad Pitt is going to be a force to be reckoned with by these Manson family guys. Yeah, and I agree wholeheartedly. We're made to think he leaves, and then we know he comes back. The only obviously. reason I hesitate is to, I wonder, do we want to go down the road of discussing what is Brad Pitt in this movie now? Yes and no. <laughs> no not yet. <laughs> right, we're we're right. almost there. We're almost there to talk about Cliff. Booth. John Wilkes? No, Cliff. All right, so Leo singing the green door. That's who the fuck are you? <laughs> Leo singing the green door. I thought it was just this cutaway goofy thing, Mike, but it's a setup for the payoff of Leo singing 30, 40, 50,000 or more. <laughs> when he's singing the Red Baron thing, he actually loves to sing. He loves to sing. He's out there in his pool with the headphones belting it out because he loves to sing. Which and is, that's why he is distracted during the yeah. opening part of the Manson stuff. Great call by you. Total dichotomy between the Rick Dalton character and Leonardo DiCaprio because he's on record saying that I don't think I got hired for my singing voice and I don't think Rick would have either. So right. I think that's kind of a tongue-in-cheek moment by him. But yeah, it's a fantastic point I hadn't heard anyone bring up yet by you. Okay, so we're ready to get into worst scenes, finally. Just to tell you how much 
we think about this movie. We went for and an why, hour why we on the best scenes. It is an Oscars contender right. at the end of the day. I mean, we were talking before we hit record. Is it going to be the best picture of the year? That remains to be seen. But it's probably going to finish as one of the top five most polished movie. It's probably going to finish as one of the top five most technically proficient movies of the year. Right. So I don't see how you can't have the conversation about it. An hour. Literally an hour. Yeah. We just talked for an hour about the best scenes of this movie, and yeah. we probably could have talked for another hour. Right. So, yeah, we got to touch on some worse scenes. Yes, we do. I had a few issues. I had one, like, moral issue that really pissed me off in all four watches. Uh, I guess I'll start here. Yeah, so, go for it, man. Yeah, Brad Pitt, Margaret Qualley, their flirtations bothered me. Not during the first watch, because I'm like, all right, Margaret Qualley, she's 25. I know she's 25. I watched her in The Leftovers. I watched her in Novitiate. I've watched her in The Nice Guys. I know how old she is. I know she's a 20-something. She played, you know, college These kid. are two adults. I know these are two adults. I'm not worried about 40 and 25 right. as being illegal, as being gross. And then in the scene when they're in the car, we have her or him asking for her ID and basically revealing to us that she's underage. And Playing obviously 16, basically. Yeah, obviously right. underage. So it's like 16 or 15. Now, I have a problem with this because Hollywood keeps doing this. All right? I work with kids of this age group. You don't mistake the age of these kids. Right. I, I just, I, there's, I haven't met a girl, that, that I haven't coached a girl that I've said, all right, maybe she looks 22, 23, 24. I just haven't. Maybe she looks 17, 18. But it's just like, it, to me, bottom line, a person who flirts with girls that young are predators. And Hollywood keeps, you know, perpetuating this idea that men who who flirt with these girls are mistaking them. And it, it's just a bad look at the end of the day. I don't know what Tarantino's trying to say. I know that if you cast a girl that was actually 15 or 16 or 14 or whatever, if you cast the younger girl, these scenes would have been gro- even grosser than what I wound up taking away from it. Because I, I wound up hating Brad Pitt after those scenes. Like, why would he make Google eyes at her beforehand? Now, we've debated this a little bit. Yeah, we, we, we've debated There's, as You have whether, another reading of it. We've debated as to whether or not... I think you're, what you're saying is very true. It is 100% accurate if the premise and the setup is that Brad Pitt was lusting after her from the jump. Right. And forget it. If you had Elsie Fisher, one of her friends from the 8th grade movie from Bo Burnham, in this sequence, right... It'd be gross. It would disqualify the movie. We'd all hate it. Would it would not be an Oscars contender. It would yep. not, forget about Oscars. Yeah, it wouldn't be a good movie. You have yep. Brad Pitt flirting with a 25-year-old Margaret Qualley. All right, frowned upon. I don't know how you take right. that. Some so the, people have So the problem, I mean, it's certainly more aesthetically approved on, on the viewer's eye that it is yeah. it is to adults. And you're right. If this was an actual 16-year-old cast in this role... There would be all kinds of problems, and the Manson girls were notoriously young. Uh, the oldest ones at the camp and, and on the ranch were like 23, the 22, at the 23 at the end. end. Right. So and he did have years. reportedly people, young girls as young as 14 there. Right. So, yeah, while Pussycat's not a real, at least as far as I know, not a real Manson girl. Yeah. I took her as an amalgamation of right. his... Basically, his hookers or and his he girls was that known. were hitchhiking. He, he yeah. was a pimp in a past life, and he was essentially a pimp in the Manson family. Right. 
for for lack of a better term, disgusting so. guy. And these girls would hitchhike. They would look for you know rich people, rich guys who they could take advantage of, who like the the Beach Boy. Yeah, they they would look for Dennis Wilson. Yep, Dennis Wilson. They they would look for uh, young guys who would become part of the group and hopefully be some enforcers like Tex and and Clem or whatever. That was the reality of the situation. Why, other why you know why else is he being brought back? Why what's her you know, reason to bring him back if they're not thinking of stealing from him or taking advantage of him in some way. Anyway, we have this scene getting me aggravated because Hollywood keeps perpetuating this stereotype. Right. And that's 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 the big issue is that if Brad Pitt is actually doing these things, then yes, all it does is reinforce the stereotype that's been an issue. It's not the reality. You right. meet a 16-year-old girl, she might look 18, but she doesn't look freaking 25. You meet a 15-year-old girl, she looks 15. It's yeah. fucked up. The people who actually prey on these kids are predators. And it's not, oh, whoopsie-daisy. And and Roman Polanski is a fucking scumbag for having sex with a 13-year-old girl who he knew was 13. Scumbag, you yeah. hear me? Scumbag. Yeah. I, don't have, I don't have a problem dying on that hill. He's a fucking criminal and a scumbag because a 13-year-old girl is a 7th grader. Period. End of story in my book. Agree with everything you say. Uh, cosign, 100%. So it's just like you have those stories surrounding this movie. And I don't think, and we, we kind of talked about this, I don't think this scene is responding to the Polanski comments that he I don't think so either. That he made and apologized for. I don't I, think it's doing that. Now, my reading of this scene was different from yours, and you alluded to that. My reading, I, the way I approach this is that I agree 100% with everything you're saying. If the setup to this is... That Brad Pitt's character is openly flirting with lusting after whatever right. adjective you want to use. I didn't see that. Well, we've talked about it. You can reread the scene. Right. I, I, I mentioned that you know once Brad Pitt got up close to her, he's like, oh shit, she's right. underage. Now you and have a paternal dynamic. Again, you still got the jailbait kind of bullshit. You know, shut it's down tough explaining away her head in his lap on the road. And Look, a fifteen-year-old girl. You're in a car with a fifteen-year-old girl, and she puts her head in her lap like that, and she's it's gross. What do you do? Yeah, you, you, you fucking get the fuck off. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You shut it down right. in a different way. Agreed. You don't shut Agreed. it down it, that it, way. Yeah, it, you don't play along with that. That's tough. Now, the the only because I didn't see it that way, and because I didn't see him being openly lustful after her. Right. To me, that was him on a crusade because he. There's enough there to say that he was not interested in this girl. I mean, yeah, he waves to her, he gives her the peace sign, <laughs> but the only reason he lets her in the car at all. Is after he hears, wait, you and a bunch of friends like you are living at George Spahn's ranch. Yeah. That doesn't add up. I need to make sure George is okay. Now, you and I in that situation, who are we concerned for? He in that situation is concerned for George right. Spahn. Yes, that's another. Who are you yeah, and I concerned right. would for? Be concerned for the girl. We're concerned for these young kids, right. of course. Like, if, especially if she is if sixteen. He's on the truly righteous crusade, mm-hmm. he's getting these underage girls away from yep. this commune of hippies, these pimps. But he hates hippies. He hates hippies less than Rick does. The only caveat to that is that it was a different time, and hitchhiking hippies and picking them up in the age of innocence and all that—that that right. was quite commonplace. Before the Manson murders. It feels like a bunch of high school kids doing crazy things. Right. And everybody wrote them off to a degree based on the history. Based on the history that we know after well, Based on the history they were allowed to write, which is a whole other issue I still want to talk about. And based yeah. on the history that we just consumed over the last week of watching all the Manson family docs, we know that they were his front window girls right. that he called them or whatever it was. That they were his his bait, essentially. Charlie right. Manson's bait. And now we that we know that, and then we get the squeaky story... 
this is Tarantino's first movie after the Time's Up movement. I'm like, what the fuck? I can't believe he went there with this. Why even bother with this? Giving us a jailbait. Now, the, the, other, know, side, rationalization. the other side of all this is that maybe Cliff is just a truly despicable guy anyway. He could be. Because he could have killed his wife. Right. He probably Maybe killed Cliff his wife. intentionally murdered his wife, right. which, to be fair, objectively, is a suggestion we're given and what we're led to believe. It's more than a suggestion in a way because it's a total flat. You were talking about it beforehand. Like, he probably, if we had to bet, 95% he killed his wife. And got away with it. He and he's notorious. And this is known for Now, it. that's kind of, that's why he's so notorious in Hollywood. That's yeah. why he's not an actor. That's why he doesn't have consistent stunt work. That's why he's kind of a black plague, except Rick Dalton stands up for him. Now, so that all adds up. And yeah, if he is this despicable, disgusting guy, then uh, it's gross. It's terrible. It's not right. But he's a despicable guy. So, Tarantino just had a movie, The Hateful Eight. Mm -hmm. And we go back and forth during the watching of that movie where they're doing, some guys are doing heroic things, then they're doing despicable things. Everybody's racist, everybody's despicable, and okay, they're also, you know, trying to fight against the evil. Like, you know, Samuel Jackson's got his, you know, good parts, good side, and, and same with, you know, the hangman, Kurt Russell's character, etc., etc. They're mostly grimy throughout. But they do have different things. Tarantino's almost like pushing these dimensions to further ends of the spectrum with Cliff's character. Agree. Like he might have killed his percent. wife, but he's the best dog owner we've ever seen. He and might, best friend. He's the best friend. <laughs> he's the best friend of Rick. Yeah. Like, is he the literally man? putting his life on the line? Yeah. Know, he's allowing in my opinion, these flirtations with this girl to escalate, but he's also on a righteous crusade to kind of fix this situation, whatever this situation is, to investigate it, which is probably a good thing that he's trying to do. I mean, he is on a righteous path. It's just, maybe it's the righteous path in the 60s. Maybe a man in that position in the 60s would have the mindset of, I need to make sure my buddy George is okay right. over, I need to make sure these teens that are just living crazy are okay. And he's driving Tarantino's father's car. And that's a whole and other subtext thing. Did yeah. he kill his so wife? Now is, and yeah. that's his mother, Tarantino's mother. So what's that's the commentary about? Yeah. And he's, you know, we're looking up. We're at looking it. at Brad Pritt's driving Tarantino's on the record saying, that's basically my POV looking up at my father driving down Hollywood Boulevard. So now we're asking a whole different set of questions. The protagonist here. of the movie is Rick Dalton, and the, the, his friend is probably the worst guy in the world. The director of this movie is Quentin Tarantino, and his quote unquote main business his partner. His friend was Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. Right. So there's just all these things right. that are swirling in my head. It's like, like an elastic band ball. Oh my God. There's a billion different things in here that are all intertwined that make this kind of tension in this whole other object. So you don't think this will disqualify the movie at the end of the day or, or rub people the wrong way? Do we think there's a backlash coming? Yes. I, I do think there is a backlash. I think there's people that are going to... I think there's people that are so done with Tarantino right. that are going to take anything he gives them. Yeah. Which also is why I think he was so careful in doing this, in, in everything about this, and explaining away every just, objective he could. If, I mean, I go back to, again, there's yeah, one fucking mouse and a bunch of horses in this movie, and one of the first things you see in the credits is a giant banner that says no animals were harmed. So you can't even come after me for that. I still think he's a little belligerent throughout this sequence, where he's just like... He's still Tarantino. He's still Tarantino. You know, I mean, that's it's just, true. He's still this there. Is, this is my opinion of this particular situation. Yeah. I don't care that it's after all this... I don't 
don't you know, disagree. Shitstorm that yeah. I've been through. I'm gonna still tell my story, and if it has abrasive elements, and if it, it's a bad look for me in some situations, I'm still gonna tell my story the way I want to say. It. I, to me, that's that's still belligerent. But we'll see. We'll see if it holds them back at the end of the day with the academy. We do have a couple other worse though. Do you have something right off the top here? I didn't like at all, and I timed, this is three and a half minutes that could have been cut from the movie. I know Tex returning sets up a showdown uh, when Cliff gets his flat tire and all that, but Tex is kind of written in a completely different manner the next time we see him for the actual showdown anyway. It's not the same mindset. He's not this tough guy on a white horse anymore because of the drugs, because he's being yelled at by Rick. The history, we know it's because he goes off and he gets in trouble with the gang. I... Could have done without the flat tire sequence on the ranch at all. That whole three and a half minutes from the minute you see the needle in Cliff's yeah. tire, I, I don't like it. To me, I called it on Tarantino before because it was just a means to an end of an action movie. Right. Like it's the scene that you, it's the obligatory scene in an action movie where the final showdown has to be foreshadowed. Between basically, it's but you kind of already had it's it, like right? the way in, like you already had Cliff with his hands in front of him, holding himself tight, talking I, to Tex. You could have written that part of it better, right. Where that could have been right. the showdown where they could have threw some trash at which each is other. my point, yeah. yeah. But they really didn't, it was just like I was on a chain gang in Houston. Oh, and you could have had all of that still. You could have had the Cliff George Spawn interaction, you could have had Cliff getting yelled at by Pussycat on the way out, you could have had him getting yelled at by all the Manson girls that are all in the front, you could have had all of it. But you have three and a half minutes where he's beating up the hippie guy for... I mean, we already know he's a tough guy. Right. We already know Cliff is, can handle himself by so this point. He's really tough. And, we, and, and you he, could have had a better interaction with Tex to set that up. This is kind of... Of the superfluous scenes, to me, that was yeah. the most. And the Bruce Dern stuff is good. You thought that went long. But it did go long. I my One of my watches, I, I took a pee break during that scene. Like That was the one I chose to. And I was shocked when I came back that Bruce Dern scene was still going on. Yeah. It's way too long. So it's funny at the beginning, but to tell us everything we already know and basically to make us hear everything that we already know because you already told it to us, it's a right. long way to kind of... It's just, not It's not the first time Tarantino yeah. stumbed his nose at the audience either, though, You know, if that's the purpose of it. But you're right. Yeah, I don't disagree. And having seen it again, I, I was checking out my phone at that point. So, yeah, I, I, I agree. So my third worst scene is actually something I've come around to you on. So you don't have to argue with me. I'm going to. But right? you don't have to, because I, I I agree that you're right. The Sharon Tate stuff is fun. And I my last two watches I kinda enjoyed it a lot more. So can I explain why I'm so I'm so adamant about this? Here's yeah, one reason. Like the there's nothing you could tell me that could say her buying Tess to Ubervilles is important other than the fact that Roman plants he's gonna make tests right and that's years. yeah I, I agree there's that no reason nope. that was a two minute not scene gonna die he added that. not gonna die on that hill right. I agree so that was superfluous but it's fine whatever her being shown first of all I don't know what rights to Sharon Tate property Sony has and Tarantino was able to get his hands on to show so this may have been his only one but nonetheless we're being showcased Sharon Tate I really like this and I really appreciate it because there's clearly a white generation out there and a white swath of people who don't understand the talent she was and only yeah. know her as the Manson family victim she was a comedian in the Fearless Vampires Hunters she was funny and she does action stuff in this and movie. what are we yeah. seeing in this showcase of her talent we see her interacting with Dean yeah. Martin one of the Creme de la creme of all time Hollywood. Right. We see her being funny. We see her practicing martial arts by by what Margot Robbie did in the film. And then we see actual Sharon Tate performing martial arts on film. Her versatility right. is showing. So we're really given the showcase of all different dynamics of this. What made this up-and-coming star be right. an up-and-coming star. 
Look, you don't need the full trailer for CC Rider. <laughs> I, I think starring that was, Joe Namath that's and Ali McGraw. I agree. That's gratuitous. Yeah. He just wanted to have the most of the trailer for CC right. Rider before the Wrecking Crew starts. You know, do you need the dirty feet in there? I do you need as much. I mean, I her scenes are kind of interwoven with the Rick stuff and the Cliff stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, I think he did a nice job. I just wish it all went a little faster. I thought the the middle of the movie was a little bit bloated. Like if the movie was two hours and twenty five minutes and two hours and forty one minutes, and you cut only from the middle, I think it would have played a little better. Yeah, you have a, you. Uh, we both agree there was superfluous stuff. I think you're a little harsher on it than I am. But bottom line is, yes, some of it's fun though. Like. It's still fun to watch Sharon Tate walk down the street. I will not let you cut a second of Lancer. (laughs) Of the Lancer side. All right, the Lancer (laughs) part with Scoop McNary. I'm in. It's unnecessary. Number one. Mr. Gilbert. Is there even business, Bobby? Is there even a fried chicken in the 1800s? Don't know. Don't care. Loved it. The way he flicks that fucking half-eaten wing. Oh, my God. The drumstick. That's not one of his guys, too, Scoop McNary. Like, he just lets Scoop McNary get in a shootout and die. That's hysterical, Mike. Why are they having a shootout? Because he said you can't come in? Right. And why is he saying you can't come in? They're buddies. Once he goes in, they're buddies from Juarez. And then he goes in and reintroduces himself to the scene. Like... Think about Leo's perspective on that scene, right? What actually had to have happened on set. You not only had the interaction outside, he must have gone in, ran up the stairs to be leaning against the post to re-say, Ah, oh, hey, Johnny, why don't you get yourself a drink? I think he could have ran up the stairs, ran back down, <laughs> walked up the stairs, <laughs> r- walked back down, crawled up the stairs, because the goddamn Scoop McNary-Timothy Oliphant showdown was so gosh darn long. I won't let you cut a second of it. It was too long. <laughs> I like that in my mind... That this argument was extensive creative control that Tarantino fought for. Yeah, and then you have the long ass setup to the scene where he's up on the top of the stairs and walks down. Let's get mezcal. But it's so Don't absurd. The bottle, it's blah, all blah, blah. so beautifully absurd. I love the payoff of it because it's bad acting by Leo after he gets rattled. It's Terrible important. Acting, yep. It's important for the movie because you're gonna he's gonna redeem himself. After and it's the, also important that we not only yeah. see it's bad acting, but we also see it's stuff that he's nailed before because when he's running lines in the beginning of the movie, in his pool yeah. he gets that five dollar oh, gold piece chili pepper hard out line. But he's made to reckon with his midlife crisis mm-hmm. when he's talking to Julia Butters. He's made to reckon with his failed career when he's talking to Timothy Oliphant about the about the Steve McQueen. He stuff. says the phrase. Bronco Buster in the conversation with yeah. Julie Butter's characters before ad-libbing it in that triple alliteration ad-lib. Which was racist and shown on TV, by the way. <laughs> of course, of what course. The fuck? Of course. The 50s were terrible for everyone <laughs> terrible. but white people. Terrible. Oh my god, those are our worst though, Mike. It wasn't too bad. Uh, yeah, and again, I d- I'm not going to harp on it because I know it wasn't this movie, but you can't say worse without saying, speaking of white people... That's all that existed in this yeah, film. It's a movie about white people. Yeah, there's no black people whatsoever. Little Women's gonna be all white people. True. We'll see how it handles. I mean, I I find it hard to believe in 1969 Hollywood Boulevard there wasn't a black guy in the background. Right. I find that a little difficult to buy to buy. But yeah. we'll see how other movies handle it. But I, again, we're talking about criticisms. We're talking about worse. You have to mention this that. movie is not representative. Not at all. Not. It's not. It's a focus story about these people who are white and privileged, etc. So can we talk, before we get into screenwriting, Mike, can we talk for a second about the rewriting of history and what happened as far as the Manson family goes? Because 
the Manson family are known in history. They carry this kind of cachet, this yeah. stigma of these really evil doers who are all about their hippies gone wrong, right? Okay. And Tex Watson is this powerful beast, this ruthless killer and murderer. All of that is just is known because they did what they did to Sharon Tate, to the Tate LaBianca murders, Cielo Drive, all of that. Yeah. Tarantino in this movie kind of makes them all doofuses. And they'll so, be remembered in history as doofuses. So here was my consumption of the Manson family mm-hmm. stuff. Like, if, if you watch the older documentaries, if you watch Helter Skelter, if you read that book, you have who? You have the FBI, everybody demonizing yes. the Manson family. And, I'm the devil, I'm here to do the devil's bit. That's terrifying. Charlie Manson is made out to be this thoroughly mastermind this, this mastermind is thoroughly capable guy when in fact he it, in many ways is a two-bit criminal pimp he's a who, failed song who likes to screw and who who loves this polygamous right. lifestyle because he spent his whole entire life in jail in prison he is as screwed up a personality as there ever was is and t- we have basically kind of this new version of the Manson family with all the newer stuff I watched and I listened to. And a lot of the podcasts out there, especially the last podcast mm-hmm. on the left, are talking about the Manson family much differently nowadays. After many of the books that have been written and that they referenced, you have this group of kids who break bad and who are a bunch of fucking dumbasses, They're a bunch of drug, drug addicts. Induced. They don't have right. they they're they're craving leadership and direction. They're mostly from homes that were their parents were not maybe not absentee but maybe ignored them. Yeah. Even know, if you go back to the case files, like the way they discarded their bloody stuff, yeah. it was dumb. They just, just threw, threw it in down the, the hill. Yeah. yeah, like they're out of their minds on drugs. They are effed up in every way possible. They, obviously, they cross lines that if you cross, you should be locked away, throw away the key. But they are not these. Demonic monsters. monsters and these powerful monsters. They're a bunch of high school kids who and the college ki- age kids who break the worst kind of bad you can think of. And the only reason they're remembered as monsters is because they were successful that night. Let's be yeah. honest. Those, Ch- I mean, those two nights, I should say. And Charlie Manson's a failed folk singer. Right. An opportunist who tries to take advantage of people. And then the second he's put in prison, he's a mumbling, bumbling lunatic. And I think that's the biggest thing that hit, that Tarantino rewrote. And the biggest message of this movie for me is that He's not letting the bad guys write history. I'm the devil and I'm here to do the devil's business or the devil's work. Mm. That is a terrifyingly real line throughout history. It's something Tex said right before he did commit some of these murders and some of these stabbings. And he stabbed these people untold times. And it's turned into the setup for a punchline by Brad Pitt in this because these kids are treated as doofus kids. It it does raise the hair on the back of your neck, though, in that scene. Certainly. You recognize, especially in first viewing. Yeah, the first view, I'm like, oh shit. Yeah, are, they, and it's, are is Brad picking a die in that? So thing? now, in true Tarantino fashion, and because he's rewriting history, but in true Tarantino, it's completely undercut. And then he rewrites history, so history in this realer than real universe is going to remember the Manson family as what? A bunch of hippie kids that lived on a ranch that tried to break into Rick Dalton's house mm-hmm. and ended up getting killed by his dog and his buddy and a flamethrower. I think that's kind of something to be said about the way we remember history in general. He's done this before, in a way, making Goebbels just this desperate for approval character. Good point. And he made the the bagheads in Django Unchained a bunch of Looney Tune kind of. Another good point. Yep. Uh, he's done this before. He he's w- kind of taking the air out of the biggest monsters in our history. Right. And is that necessarily a bad thing? I don't know. 
I don't, I don't think it. I mean, you can debate it to the end of the earth. The fact of the matter is, you're gonna kill these people, overkill these people. So, you're I mean, not you're gonna develop. You're gonna those take characters. the piss out of them completely first. Exactly. And, nah, it was dumber than that. <laughs> you know, you're gonna completely undercut these people and take away any a- evil agency they have right. before you make them helpless jerks. And again, Tarantino playing it safe, lest there be anyone out there who said that Sadie didn't deserve to get flamethrowered. He even took the extra step of having her point the gun at Rick, even though she couldn't see what the fuck she was doing. You can argue that Sadie was the most despicably evil in terms of uh, an interview based on... That was a fantastic uh, portrayal, too, uh, by that actress. Her being interviewed is, like, the scariest thing I ever witnessed. Like, she might have been the most They were truly brainwashed. I mean, they were susceptible. But they were drugged, whatever. Whether it was Manson telling them exactly what to do, or whether it was text calling audibles like they did here. And you have an audible being called, which was something interesting. And again, it's like that new school Manson... Mm -hmm take that maybe he wasn't the mastermind that we all think yeah, he maybe was. there so, wasn't this tight plan to go kill yeah. roman polanski's wife maybe they just decided to you know that number one the whole plan to go there because the beach boys were gone it was a fuck up from the get-go so yeah i mean the whole n- new school manson theories they make some sense to me also wanted to point out think it was kind of not a misdirect, but again, him playing it safe. Let's not give Charlie Manson anything more than a few lines. Let's not give any critics wave, reason. Yeah. Let's not give critics any reason to criticize me about me glorifying him at all. He gets one interaction and he's out of my movie. But that's an inciting incident, mm-hmm. essentially, for a B story. It's a that, setup. Yeah, yeah, you have to do it. Right. Um, and it's on that particular day that he created the whole story. The day where Charlie Manson realized, realized that Dennis that Wilson, Wilson wasn't li- living there. Damon Harriman portrayed Charles Manson. He will also be portraying Charles Manson in the new season of Mindhunter on Netflix coming out. And I just wanted to clean up. Mikey Madison is the actress that played Sadie. Beautiful job there. Let's go into some uh, screenwriting thoughts from Tarantino himself, Mike. So here's the quote. Know who your characters are when they're alone and know who your characters are when they're presenting themselves around others. Oh, wow. This was a quote from must-see films, and to me, this harkens back to two of our favorite scenes of the movies, Leo yelling at himself in the trailer. This is an opportunity for Tarantino to show us who this character is when he's alone, right? thousand percent. We've seen this with John Travolta telling himself to have one drink and leave, be polite, <laughs> and he comes out and Mia's on the floor. We see Kurt Russell crying and pouring his liquor onto his wound. No! No! <laughs> Who is he when he's alone? He, Kurt Russell was a coward, coward. and death-proof. Yep. You know, you have, you have uh, John Travolta, whatever he was in the, in the <laughs> but you have Leo being this, this guy who's having this nervous breakdown. Who is he? He's like this bipolar guy beating himself up. Desperately he's self-destructive. to a career that yeah. he knows he's losing grip on and is passing him by and that's so relatable and it's so mm-hmm. scary and it's uh, you know you you have a personality that's the way he is he's like the george w bush want to have a beer with him kind of political candidate sure right just walking around town and when he's about to get his car after he gets the the leveling that al pacino gave him breaks down and cries and you know he's gonna break down and well, cry fucking in front has of, been in front of cliff right yeah and Cliff's like, you don't want to do, don't, <laughs> don't cry him. here. Don't cry here. <laughs> yeah. And that yeah. maybe racist thing that he right. says. Right, yeah. And then he gets in the car and the guy's in the car next to him, the valet, and he's just, just <laughs> breaks down and cries there. So I related so much to this Leo performance. That's why another reason I think it's just so good. In a meta way, I wonder, because that whole flip out in that trailer scene was basically ad-libbed or added at the point, I wonder if Leo was self-reflective. 
Because, yeah, he's a guy on top of the world, on top of the acting His world. career. Like, he can't relate to Rick Dalton career-wise, but personal, pers- his, in can, his personal life, he's not married. He doesn't have a family, does he? That's a great... I wasn't even going there, but that's another fantastic point. I was going... I mean, you could ima- he could probably put himself in the position to imagine if Hollywood were to pass him by, and he's mm-hmm. not getting these roles. And he was asked about this in a couple interviews, you know, because relating to Rick Dalton, have you ever been at a point in your career where you think it's over and the world has is, is passed you by? And he mm-hmm. said... As an actor, you understand it's ebb and flow. And when the ebbs and flows come, yeah, it can be tough to adjust. So I wonder how much of that was on the screen and was rehearsed and how much of that was just him going to his most insecure and bringing it out naturally. Look, it's been rumored a bunch, but Leo's not in any superhero movies. No. This is as close as he's gotten. (laughs) This is kind of, he's like a standout of whatever this age of Hollywood is versus the the next one that's, uh, you know, coming down on us like a tidal wave, phase four. Oh my God. Yeah. But yes, this screenwriting advice is something Tarantino has done historically and certainly practices what he preaches. As he does throughout this, I mean, he really does seem to have kind of a Bible and a gospel or at least a mantra of screenwriting rules that he adheres to. This character is one of his best. Just yes. really one of his best. <laughs> and it's a great one of Leo's best uh, as well. It was a perfect I think storm. the combination, Perfect Storm is a great way to, the combination between how it is written and Leo diving into this performance yeah. on the set where he's talking to the guy that makes him starstruck and Luke Perry, on the set where he's thinking about if Hollywood passed him by, on the set where this is another Chris Ryan point where he's acting towards Timothy Oliphant in the way that Timothy Oliphant must act towards Leo because Leo's the biggest guy in Timothy Oliphant's upbringing Mm -hmm. in Hollywood. There's so much, and the layers of Rick Dalton's insecurity, and he's stuttering when the camera's not on, but he's perfect when the camera is on, except when he isn't perfect. And then he beats himself up because he's scared. There's so much in this character. there's so many nuances, and yet the the simple plot line is a guy who's full of defense mechanisms Mm -hmm. finally realizes once and for all why he's a good actor in the middle of this movie towards the end of act two you have the big climax of him being that's the greatest acting i've ever seen in my whole (laughs) life and then you have him watching fbi with his buddy all right i got the confidence enough to go and do these four spaghetti westerns i've rediscovered what it means to be an actor and now he's on the offensive to the end of the movie when he changed he literally rick dalton changes history he doesn't know that the after effect mm -hmm. is going to get him in the door at the next door uh house where he's going to you know hopefully change his career and meet these hot new hollywood stars but essentially he changes history by going out and yelling at the hippies yeah I mean, the, the having the breakdown and resetting his attitude to pull it all together is done in the first scene of this movie. Like you just said, he's having a breakdown in the car ride back to his place, saying he's a fucking has-been. Then he sees Polanski driving up to his driveway, and he's like, man, I live next door to the director of Rosemary's Baby. I'm one pool party away from being a, an A-lister star again. State the theme, right? You're supposed to state the theme in the first 15 minutes or whatever that is. So here's the question, Mike, to, to wrap up that the movie with before we get into Easter eggs. Do you think Rick Dalton does become the new leading man in a Polanski movie? I think there's a lot of connections to Burt Reynolds. I know he, he when Tarantino's asked about it, he'll bring up other guys. Mm-hmm. To me, it feels a lot like Burt Reynolds. This is, will be my biggest Easter egg, so I'll just do it now. But Burt Reynolds literally went away and did westerns. I don't think he did spaghetti westerns, mm-hmm. but he did westerns like in the middle of his career. Uh, after he did a bunch of TV stuff, and he was going to do what after that? He took an indie film from John Borman, who was not a major director at all. He was just doing TV stuff. John Borman makes Deliverance. Mm. Now Burt Reynolds is a star. Years later, 
his stuntman, Burt Reynolds' longtime stuntman, Hal Needham, directs his next starring, or his next huge starring role. I know he did Cannonball Runs, but Smokey and the Bandit, mm-hmm. the next biggest thing. So, is this, tr- you know, mirroring that story? I don't know. It's an amalgamation. Tarantino's never going to land one-to-one allegory or anything like that. But I do think, yes, we're made to, we're made to hope for Rick's character. I, I I agree, and in my mind, I'd like to see him, if for nothing else, than to get Cliff more work. I am shocked, by the way. I, I didn't know if we were going to talk about this. I guess I'll just throw it in here. I'm shocked Cliff lives. Me too. Shocked. Because as soon as Kurt Russell says Cliff has no idea what his future holds, I'm like, oh, he's dead. You know, like, we're not, he's... Plot armor is Right, off. exactly. Yeah. He's exposed. He's got yeah. nowhere to go anyway. He's the Captain America of this. This is the reason that you thought Captain America would be taken out at the end of Endgame. Uh, but wasn't to be and it's I'm kind of glad that it wasn't to be because it's nice to see them have a nice friendship send off and that love still remain between the two guys. They are just a couple guys that are good friends and that shoot the shit and watch TV together and you're a good friend. I try. I try. I try. Say hi to my wife for me. Am I getting it right? Ah. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about some Easter eggs. Let's wrap up here with some Tarantino versus stuff, Michael. 14 fists of McCluskey, Leo Torch, and Nazis. That's an Easter egg harkening back to Glorious Bastards pretty obviously, right? I thought until this viewing today that it was the 14 fifths. Could like be. a fraction. Those fists. <laughs> it is fists. It has so, I believe it's fists. It happens so fast. <laughs> uh, we have uh, Bruce Lee. Only his tracksuit was used in Kill Bill 1. Yeah. He is in this film, so that's cool. I mean, Tarantino, he told stories on the New Ringer podcast today about how he, when he first seen Enter the Dragon and how he basically convinced all of his classmates that he saw it years before he saw it. Oh, really? He just read about it. <laughs> Tarantino bullshitting people. But, <laughs> but it, yeah, he had this whole big story about Enter the Dragon. Uh, we have the Van Nuys Drive-In, where Cliff lives. Lady in Cement is a noir with Frank Sinatra and Raquel Welch. I thought these were Grindhouse films. I was a little disappointed that this was uh, noir. And then we had More pretty, mainstream pretty, stuff. Yeah, Pretty Poison, which was Anthony Perkins' psychological thriller. On Hollywood Boulevard, we had Three in the Attic. Three girls realize that they have the same boyfriend. Kidnap him and take turns going for his attentions is that manson family s that yeah, love maybe. triangle s 1968 was weird sure was <laughs> we got the night they raided minsky's william friedman on the sign there and then we have leo's four spaghetti west this is my favorite one by sergio corbucci though the second best <laughs> Director of Spaghetti Westerns. Uh, Tarantino writing a book on Corbucci, obviously, was sidetracked when he came up with the first scene of Django Unchained. Yeah, we reviewed that in our uh, our specs for the Django episode. That was really cool. So Leo loves Sergio Corbucci, even though Sergio Leone is his favorite director. Tarantino loves. Tarantino, yeah, thank you. Said you. Leo. Yeah. Maybe Leo, who knows. Kill, kill Me Now, Ringo said the gringo. Ringo is the nickname of Tim Roth's character in Pulp Fiction, given to him by Jules. Isn't that so weird? Mm-hmm. And then Ringo, like I said yesterday, or in whenever we did that, uh, I don't know when you're releasing this, but Ringo <laughs> slash Nebraska is the name of the Ken Clark character yeah. from that Spaghetti Western that just had too many commonalities not to mention. Did you ever watch the TV show, Louie? Yes. The scene in that show where Louis C.K., and I know it's a whole nother ball of wax, but he meets with Dane Cook, and they have this heart-to-heart, and Dane is is accusing Louis of accusing Dane of having stolen his material. And Louis's explanation is, I, I, I don't think you steal from me. I think you're like a machine, and I think everything gets sucked up into the machine, 
and y it comes out the other end and you do what you want with it. So I don't think you necessarily took from me. I think it what I put out just got sucked up in your machine and you turned it into something else. And I, I cannot get that out of my head when we talk about Tarantino homages right. and his Easter eggs because I think, and even the the relation between Rick Dalton and Burt Reynolds that you just laid out, I think he's just so loaded with Hollywood pop culture and history that he just internalizes all this stuff and it makes its way into these Easter eggs and in these homages. And they are they one-to-one -one comparisons and analogies? No, but they're certainly influenced. He takes them from pop culture. He takes them from the real life. The vacuum is there. I just heard two more great Easter eggs on the Feeling Film podcast. The New Beverly Theater. I knew he had bought this theater. Right. I, re I read that elsewhere. But they had this scene in the movie where Tate and Sebring head into the El Coyote restaurant. Tate asks him if dirty movies have premieres. Jay says, yeah, and they're fun. <laughs> and uh, Tarantino worked at a dirty movie theater growing up. I didn't know this part. There's the Easter egg. I can't. I don't know what deep dive they went on to find this, but they said the it was called the Pussycat, who's Margaret Qualley's character. There you name. go. <laughs> so Tarantino <laughs> bought it back years later. It's now a regular theater. No Great longer shows by them. Movies. Great deep dive by feeling film there, but I just had to pause a sec because we're doing this in the middle of the end of days. Apparently, thunder just rocked the house. They literally rocked the house. <laughs> My God. Uh, but anyway, I mean the fact that Tarantino worked at a dirty movie yeah. place maybe that's why he doesn't show nudity in his films maybe that's it he's just it disgusts him or maybe that's it i think that's a whole psychological deep that dive. neither of us <laughs> want to go on finally uh i mentioned it before uh julia butters talks about the genius of walt disney feeling film had this on this morning her father julia butters father the actress is an animator for disney's worked on frozen and all that this so girl's I, gonna own hollywood right she's gonna own hollywood someday uh, obviously, some connections to the Tarantino-verse. If you stayed towards the mid-credit scene, you had the Rick Dalton Red Apple Cigarette. I wonder if this will be the end of Red Apple Cigarettes in Tarantino movies because of the way it was on the outro of that commercial. Who picked this picture? <laughs> Double chin! <laughs> Rick great. Dalton flipping out. That was very funny. Uh, Antonio Margarita! Margarita! <laughs> directed one of the Spaghetti Westerns. I love that Tarantino keeps using that name over and over. Yep. Big Kahuna Burger appears on a billboard during one of the Brad Pitt driving down Hollywood Boulevard scenes there. So, yeah, Big Kahuna and Red Apple Cigarettes, he had to have them in this movie, right? Of course. Right? Yeah, you have to tell the audience. Letter, it's his crescendo. So what do we want to take from the fact that we have vengeance upon the most notoriously evil people from our universe in this realer-than-real universe, okay? And it's created by the creators of the movie-movie universe, mm -hmm. the violence. Mm-hmm. What do we take from all this? What is he saying about all these... I mean, this is the multiverse, essentially. What the <laughs> hell's going on here, Mike? The th one of the theories of the realer than real universe has always been... I touched on this in a previous episode, too. But one of the theories has always been because... And sorry for spoiling, but because Hitler, in this version of reality, was killed mm -hmm. in such an over-the-top violent and explosive excuse the right. pun way bounty law becomes popular for little little kids yeah, the idea of violence, violence is more widely accepted throughout mm -hmm. pop culture and throughout history what does it say that these manson family members who were the most evil people on earth going to murder a pregnant woman what were they going to do and they're disposed of in this way what does that say <laughs> i i don't know if this was in any <laughs> other movie right the jc bring 
slash Rick Dalton conversation afterwards would just be preposterous. Yes. You can't rationalize the... Like, you would ask 20 questions about the flamethrower yeah, like, you oh, had in the closet. You blue-torched you a torched? girl? He asked one <laughs> follow-up right. question. We would ask 17 Why do you have a blowtorch yeah, from <laughs> the flamethrower? No, he's just like, from the 14th club? Right, the exactly. Closet, which was a popular movie in this universe that would never been made in the real universe. Of course you, know, you have this technology in your shed. Oh, my God. It but, still worked, thank God. And yet, the movie still makes us feel sad in the pullback to credits sure. before they make us laugh again. What is Tarantino saying? He's just saying movies are a refuge for people. We can recontextualize I think history. that's a big part of it. You yeah. know, old Hollywood and new Hollywood, they're really all fused together. They live on in my stories, in my <laughs> filmography, gosh darn it. The Age of Innocence never dies. And not in my world, yeah. and not in my movies they don't. Is he saying all these things? Is this a belligerent just screaming, this is how I want my career to be re uh, remembered? This is how I want it to be remembered. The innocence doesn't die. We got old school people that, that succeed, et cetera, et cetera. Sharon Tate lives on as an angelic presence. In my world, she does. You know, as open as he's been throughout every interview I watched, he really doesn't, at least not that I remember seeing, he's, he's very open about the technical aspects of making a film. He's not really ever opened the door to... Yeah. I mean, the Me Too involvement is the the most exposure to Tarantino's day-to-day -day life as a human being that he's really ever let us in on. So uh, about what he's done and how much of himself he does put it into his film and what exactly this is analogous to and what does this mean, what means what, he doesn't really ever comment on that... Uh, at least not that I've seen consistently. You'll get if pieces. If we haven't seen it consistently, right. nobody has <laughs> right. really seen it I mean, and we've looked at DVD extras, yeah. and, it, and that's way more concerned with the stunt work and what goes on on the set. And we've, we've read interviews, and it's much more about his personal relationships with these people, much more than about himself and his mindset. So we don't really ever get within the being John, Mal John Malkovich lens of Tarantino. No, we you don't. Know? We never are really shown that. I don't know if we ever will be. I think it would be fascinating to have him actually sit down and tell us this is what i was thinking this is what this means these people were right these people that guessed this were wrong this is what it all is and lay it all out for us but you still have rick dalton who's in the hollywood film industry the protagonist of the movie potentially the surrogate for tarantino yeah. turning his life around with a beautiful brunette who's tarantino's now married mm -hmm. to a beautiful brunette mm -hmm. turning his life around with a bunch of shit fuck crazy violence which is in these movies I don't Trugging. know. It's, 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 yeah. There's a lot of parallels going on. I don't know. There's more parallels probably. And, and why wouldn't there be? Because it's mm -hmm. a movie about his upbringing and his life as a youth. So yeah, there's going to be obviously. I get that. But there's more parallels in this movie to his personal life. Is that intentional than any of his other films? You know, maybe he wants to tell the story of himself in some way, and he's leaving enough clues there that he hopes someone puts it all together someday. Honestly, an interview I just listened to, he basically said, like, Kill Bill has all these personal things. I don't want you to know why right. it's personal to me, but it is personal to me. And this is a me. guy that won't explain why that second yeah. you is an inglorious. Yeah. He personalizes everything. You know? We just don't know it because those are his own stories. Right. Maybe his friends know it, and that's the bottom line. And maybe that's the end of it. I mean, this could be a movie about his dad, and we don't know it. His Very dad true. was a struggling Hollywood actor. This could be a movie that's a metaphor for his own career and how he views you know, his filmography. I think that's the closest we can get to it at this point. Mike, if he makes the next movie about losing at the Oscars, then we if he loses at the Oscars after this movie, then we'll know what these movies mean. And if he's bombing that theater too, we probably need to have him arrested. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> this is so long. We got final grades, Mike. Uh, I think you and I see this similarly. I was 91, 92, strong yeah. A minus all day. I don't give out A minuses or A's lightly. I love this movie. This might actually be my favorite movie ever. Uh, it's up there. For sure, but favorite maybe not best. It's yeah, one of those. One like, of those. You yep. recognize there's flaws. There's flaws. red flags. There's flaws. There's yeah. pitfalls. As a, from a critic standpoint, if this were to not win the Oscar, you completely understand why. This movie got me mad in certain scenes on all four watches, and yet I still you you, you got to recognize how good this is. A minus ninety one. Same. Uh, we didn't have a three point curve, so I wonder if this means you actually like you did like it way more than I did. Love this movie. Yeah, I, I, I certainly had less complaints. I think. Is it going to be in my top five at the end of the year? I mean, last year I didn't have any A's. I had all A minuses. First Man was the best A minus I had. The year before that we had some A's. We I'm, had a couple I'm, different A's. I'm sitting on two A minuses right now. That's the highest I've got. Yeah. I've gone. End Game is like a ninety two. And Apollo Eleven was whatever you I want to call it. End game a ninety four, and I have I have this is I have a couple A minuses this year as well. So I don't. This is probably not my favorite movie of the year, but it's uh it's up there. It's a good movie. I think that says something. You know, I mean that you didn't that you're able to say that it's not something that speaks to your heart, and yet you still recognize the the greatness of it. I think that matters. And for listen, there's people out there that are going to say this is the worst Tarantino movie ever. I don't get it. I don't get the criticism. I don't see objectively, if you're a critic, how you can see those say that. But it's I understand. I mean, this is yeah. the game that we're in. It's, it's a subjective game. He flirted with kind of one of those M. Night Shyamalan endings that do, that he Shyamalan just wants to fool you with and it doesn't work. Like the end of the Spawn Ranch sequence, to me, is a disappointment, right? The fact that we're not going to get a big blowout fight right then and there with half the family or whatever or whatever i don't know what my brain was saying i just thought we were gonna get more than what we yeah, got yeah but if we get a blowout fight there cliff probably dies there i mean he's so vastly outnumbered right you know so uh, maybe he was saving maybe that was his way of saving the cliff character i, I, I get it and again i i understand that this isn't for everyone i will die on the hill that objectively speaking if you look at this movie from thirty thousand feet it's technically sound, it's yeah. technically proficient, and it's probably one of the better-made movies you're going to see in 2019. Go back to part one. We, we put out the blueprint for each and every category on, on what you just said. Yeah. I am exhausted from talking right now. This was a lot. We've probably done more talking about this movie than he <laughs> finally put on film for this movie. But, oh, all right. Well, hey, that's the, we're going to wrap up our Tarantino rewatch series, which only took, you know, 15 hours of recording plus untold hours of research and writing beforehand. But we Editing. hope you did enjoy it. Uh, we hope that you guys got something out of this. I know it was very fruitful and fulfilling for Mike and myself. We want to know your thoughts, comments, questions, concerns, not only about the series in general, specifically about the Oscar chances that you think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has, something you disagree with that we said, something you agree with, you appreciate us highlighting, all of that in a bag of chips. We want to hear from you as we always do. You guys are the fuel that make this MMO engine run, and we thank you, cannot thank you enough for listening and interacting as much as you do. And as always, if you are a new listener and you want to interact with us, you can reach out to us. We are on Facebook at Mike, Mike, and Oscar, and also on Instagram at Mike, Mike, and Oscar. We're on Twitter at mm and oscar that's our handle there we're mike mike and oscar at gmail.com.com and on reddit we're available everywhere you hear podcasts whether that's tune in stitcher soundcloud apple Podcasts, etc etc if you type in mike mike and oscar you'll see our cartoon faces smiling back at you and if you're looking for the tarantino rewatch segments we do you're going to see mike dressed up as vincent vega and me dressed up as zuma thurman looking mm -hmm. back at you so that's something <laughs> uh, cute to look forward to if you appreciate what we do here and the time that we put into these rewatches if you can leave us a five-star review on apple Podcasts 
podcast, maybe a couple of nice words. Uh, we'll read those, those really out where Those really do help us out and go a long way. And once again, we cannot thank you enough for the listening that you have been giving us. It really makes us feel like uh, we're doing something that that matters. We had a great month, great week. We had, uh, you know, Oscar comparable numbers the last yep. two weeks. So we really appreciate it, guys. So it, 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 you've been listening like crazy. So thank you again. Uh, what's coming up next? We got the Oscar race update show that we're debuting. I can't believe we have to do that after this. <laughs> it's, it's huge. It's huge. I know. We have uh, uh, the MMOW, our Mike, Mike and Oscar weekly show. That's our variety show. We got Hollywood hot takes, horror movie news, uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe mm-hmm. franchise news. We're kind of going to do audience interaction. A lot of fun stuff on that show and we're going to get more oscar speculation in its own show oscar segments oscar trailer reviews oscar news fall film festivals that's what's in uh, store for this particular next episode after that we got a tarantino award show that we'll have fun with and who knows the farewell bunch of oscar movies yeah despite what you may have heard oscar doesn't exist in this podcast it's us being an oscars podcast so that's kind of what we do we we try to put everything up to an oscars lens that's our focus that's our bread and butter that's what we do uh most and hopefully best but michael what do you got for words of wisdom to send these people home with john travolta gif (laughs) the john travolta gif where he's walking around he doesn't know where he is that's how we feel right now, it's right? I'm sure you feel the same way. Uh, exhaustion, yes. This has, been, exhausted. this has been quite its own little sprint that we talk about the Oscar sprint being. But guys, when reality sucks, you can come watch these movies with us. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar trying to make award season year-round for you without the stuffiness. Thank you from the bottoms of our hearts for following us and listening along to this rewatch series. We'll be with you in another day or so. See ya. I can almost taste it now Oh, it's sweet as wine